All right, so today we have Nick Dunn. Now, one of my all-time favorite books is Shantaram, and that was based on his life, True Events, and he wrote a chapter about being in the Indian prison. And my God, was it brutal. It was absolutely just savage. And I was thinking, as I was reading that, I was thinking, I wouldn't like to be an Englishman in this bloody environment. Because the guy who wrote the book was Australian. He was on the run. He ended up in India. And the torture, the guard brutality, it was just another level. So... Thinking, you know, I wouldn't like to be an Englishman in this bloody prison. Here today, we have Nick, who is an Englishman from the north, way north, who did end up in Indian prison. And his book, appropriately, is called Surviving Hell, available worldwide on Amazon and published by Mirror Books. And... Many of you may be familiar with Nick's story because it was in the news and I saw it in the news. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right though. The Chennai Six. Chennai Six, yes. Chennai Six, yeah. So Nick was in prison, in Indian prison, from October 2013 to 2017. And you may be thinking, well, he probably deserved to go to prison. He's probably like trafficking drugs through a country with the death penalty or something like that. No! This is a massive miscarriage of justice whereby not only shouldn't he have been in prison in the first place, when he was exonerated, they wouldn't even let him go for years. So we're going to get to that. All right, <laughs> Nick, thanks for driving down from the far north. <laughs> Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to get to your life story and your, you know, your army background and all that stuff. But before we do, we like to start out with like something to give the, the audience an idea of what's coming, what's perhaps the most insane thing you saw in prison, like your craziest pri Indian prison story? Um, uh, there is quite a few um, where we all came down with the lurgy and uh, that was quite interesting because um, it just spread like wildfire. Um, and when you're on low malnutrition, it hits you really, really bad. Was that from the food poisoning? I think it might have been because we're not all Gordon Ramsay chefs and we were cooking our own food because we didn't want to eat rice and dal three times a day. Um, rice and dal. Yeah. And I saw that deteriorate for the prisoners and I'm glad we decided to try and become chefs ourselves. So um, you had access to like things you could cook? Yes. Um, more for when we were after our convicted uh, charge. Um, the first prison where we were in remand, that was, we were scratting around for food. Uh, food that we would get was rotten and it was just lying on the floor and that you had rats and cats, you know, potentially urinating on So we had to make sure we washed extensively the vegetables that we were given. And it was kind of like a first come, first serve. And we were just starving majority of the time for them six months. So there's rancid food left on the floor that cats and rats have pissed on. Yes. How prevalent are the cats and rats? Very. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. At one point, we counted about 30 cats in just our compound alone. And when the cats are there, the rats do go away, but 
they started getting rid of the cats and we said if you get rid of too many cats the rats will come out and sure enough the rats who are nearly the size of adult cats over there and that's not a word of a lie these cats were big but these rats were equal size and the, you didn't really see many cat and rat fights that's for sure <laughs> what was your first running with a rat um my first running with a rat, um, we're all in my cell, me and three other guys all cramped in this cell. It was probably about 10 by 8. It's not a big big cell, hole in the floor for the toilet. And we were playing battleships just to try and pass the time before lights out. Mm. And what this, I was obviously facing the door and this rat kind of came in and it was huge, and I just kind of got up and went, rat, 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 and the other lads were kind of, oh, shut up, man, there's no rat there. I went, seriously, is, there's a, there was a rat, but it's scarped, and then... When you say just came in, came in from where? Just outside, just... And that's when, after that, we kind of started getting cardboard and tying it onto the, the uh, cell door. What was outside the cell door? Just the rest of the compound. Uh, yeah. These cell doors were not like a, a UK prison cell door where it was just a little window hatch. These were just... Bars with gaps in, so anything, any creature could just crawl in and get you. And I, you know, was lying asleep on the floor um, on this little thin mattress that the embassy got with. Um, and I just thought, oh, bit of breeze touching my feet, and it wasn't. It was actually a rat, but I just thought, oh, nothing of it. I literally turned on the. To the sat on my side, just to try and get comfortable, and I was literally faced <laughs> with this rat right in my face, and I've never shit myself in my entire life. I literally jumped up, sc- start screaming, rat. The rat literally jumped over uh, the guy next to me. One of the other guys sat up, it bounced off him. <laughs> One of the other lads, he 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 just pulled his blanket over him, and it just shot up. I was like. How I can't get that sleep. I'm, you know, because like they carry diseases, rats, and we saw how the guards act to when one of the guys was had, uh, I think, a stomach ulcer, and the guards are sleep. Then they don't care. You're just a number to them. They don't care if you live or die in them prisons. So were the rats traveling solo or in packs? Um, I just normally saw one by one. Never saw a. Uh, clutter them all together it was just the odd you know rat cutting about and maybe you caught a cat eating a rat which we did on one or two occasions eating like a live rat it, well it, it, caught, it caught it caught the rat and it was having a good old munch on it yeah wow because them feral cats will eat anything to survive did you guys have to like come to some kind of agreement with the cats um I'm, I, I like cats and a couple of other guys like cats. I know cats isn't a, a pet favourite for everyone, but these cats were abused by the Indian prisoners. And when we came, we kind of, you could say, befriended them when we started getting a bit chicken every day instead of just once a week. We were given the chicken skin and the uh, the guts of the chicken and the bo- bones to the cats and, you know, they were being nice, but you had to obviously keep them at arm's length because, you know, you don't want to get attacked by them in case they are carrying, say, rabies. But they looked okay. Some of them looked a bit haggard, but that's because of the abuse by the Indians. But 
after we started kind of making sure the cats were well looked after, the Indians kind of basically left them alone, really? which was nice because I don't like animal cruelty. Yeah, of course. Did you have a favourite cat? We did, yeah. He was a, a little arsehole, but he, he, it's because he was one of the abused cats and we called him Bus Stop because he was a gauzy-eyed cat. He had one eye, one <laughs> looking one way and another another way and he was funny. He was funny. I've I've got like, uh, my sister sent a spy pen which I could do video on it as well and I've got a video of us feeding the cats and you <laughs> see them jumping up and... Cr- them fighting on with each other. It was it was funny. Are was you it? able? To, are you able to send us that to include in the podcast? I can try. Yes, I've that got. Like amazing. I say, I, I I want I wanted to in the prison get some photos, um, be, because I felt it was necessary. So I asked my sister to send us a spy pen, um, with a notepad just to disguise it. And when we were getting parcels. The, they just really looked for contraband, i.e. cigarettes and drugs, but and they would take the odd uh, beef jerky off because beef was a no-go there. <laughs> so when you are seeing a lone rat then, what mission is that rat on? Is it trying to find out where you're storing your food? Is yes, it- we had a, a we had a we had these big shelves and we had to put off main food up but with a with a we had mosquito nets on the main windows, um, but like the windows are just bars, barred windows, and the door was exactly the same. So we got that mosquito netted up as well, and was reinforced it with cardboard from boxes that we would uh, accumulate from the the kitchen when we went to get where where groceries uh, for cooking and all that. Um, so we tried our best to keep the rats out, but they would eventually find their way because they just chew through things. Did you just wake up and shit had been chewed through? Yeah, was, was, there's been a few times where a cat had came in and climbed up, and but they cats are inquisitive, they're curious. Mm. They, you know, they're, they're up to, they're, they're nocturnal animals, so they're up to no good, but they're pretty harmless compared to the rats. You know, you don't really want a rat in. You can, you know allow a cat in now and again, but rats are indefinite, no go. So during my incarceration, I was in a desert prison that was submerged into the ground. I was put in a cell one day whereby the cell window was at the level of the ground. <laughs> so all the mosquitoes are just pouring in. Yeah. Now this is the Sonoran Desert, almost 50 degrees. It's quite hot. So I, I was in minimum security. I was allowed this little fan. <laughs> and... Um, I'd wake up in the morning and the mosquitoes that had just sucked the blood out of me in the night had got like, must have got like trying to fly all like bloated with blood yeah. and got sucked into the fan. <laughs> so I'd wake wake up to them all just splattered against the wall in the morning. And um, have you got any mosquito stories? Uh, uh, mosquito, to be honest, mosquitoes don't really bother me. Yeah. I mustn't have tasty blood. What about that noise they make though? Oh. You're trying to sleep and it's like... Ugh! Yeah, I did. When it was like monsoon time, which the prison was really hit with monsoon, that's obviously when the mosquitoes are going to thrive. Yeah. So I did have a mosquito net. Um, but when we were just sat around in the evening, I used to sit on a little stool and you you, you were slapping your legs because you could feel them. And some of them you could see and they were just full of blood. 
so you just kill them and obviously you know wipe your hands and we had loads of alcohol gel I wish I knew uh, COVID was going to happen because I could have brought it all home and sold it. <laughs> I would have been a millionaire probably by now, but uh, I used it mainly to kill ants. Oh, yeah, ants. So all these foreign prisons generally have like different animals and insects, don't they? We what, had snakes. What, what, what did you experience then? Well, on one occasion, we had this orange and black spider and it was on one of the uh, windowsills and it had its front legs up and its fangs shown and and I was thinking if we get bit by that we're probably going to be dead before an ambulance turns up so one of the guys ran around and smashed it and killed it and we had a few uh, cobra snakes cobras yeah they're, they're obviously the, the, they're pretty small but the Indians killed them and then they would cook them on the fire and eat them did you ever eat the snakes? I didn't know, but it just goes to show that in these prisons, it's nothing like a UK prison. It is world apart, and the threat is there, and it comes from everything. Everything, including the environment. Yeah, the the heat was absolutely disgusting, especially during uh, one particular summer where it got to like 40, 50 degrees and we did have fans in the prison, but there was much use as tits on a fish because all they would do was just push hot air around. But what really, really used to take you to another mental level was they would switch the power off all day from, say, sometimes 10 o'clock in the morning till 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. So... With our compound, the pump for the water, because it's no power, so we literally had to go and fill all our buckets up because obviously we used our buckets to for sanitation and washing our clothes, washing our pots and pans after food, and we had to be scarce. So obviously, washing yourself, you learn to use as very little water as possible because you've got to cons- you know you've got to consume very little because you don't know when the power's coming and the heat was just exalted. Yeah, the flies were relentless because they were just sucking your sweat and it was just a nightmare. You you couldn't go outside because it was too hot. You couldn't stay inside the cell because it was too hot. It was actually relentless at times during the summer. Let's go over the heat more slowly then because this is something I'm familiar with. Like you said, you, the fans just pushing the hot air around. Oh, the point You're sweating constantly. Did that kind of create things on your skin because I was getting yeah. bed sores and skin infections. It looks like it spilled battery acid on my leg at one point. Some, some, Sometimes um, there was a few sensitive areas on the back of your knees from just sweat and just different, san- you know, the water. It appears clean. It wasn't because I brought a couple of uh, clothes back and when I'm hand washing my clothes and when I've, used an actual washing machine i could see the difference um so the water it was clean to a degree but it wasn't spotless so you had to be really careful and um, we were drinking bottled water so we would get one of those big office uh bottles of water sent in by the prison each day um so we could obviously keep hydrated because in living in a hot country, especially in a prison, 
you need to keep hydrated. Were you allowed just to lounge around in a pool of sweat in your own boxer shorts, or did you have to wear like some kind of uniform? Um, there was you had to wear white white shirt and shorts. Obviously, I had to cut mine to size because it was a bit too tight, so I cut the sleeves off. And then, obviously, when I was able to get my family, I got a normal shirt because the Indian superintendent didn't like us coming in with slightly half of a uniform. But we had our own clothes, like, after family visits, bringing a vest in or a T-shirt and short. But, like, if you had to go down to, say, the jail as for family meetings or embassy meetings and going to see the superintendent, we had to wear whites. So it was kind of a bit of a, a prison uniform, but it, other than that, you were just relaxed and chilled and short. So people who are not familiar with the story watching this are probably wondering, how the hell did Nick get in this situation in the first place? So we're going to go back in time now. Um, instead of just jumping straight into it, though, let's get a bit of background about you growing up. What what was what, what time were you born in and what was that like? Um, I was born in March 86, so I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s and I come from a, a, a northern working class family. My dad was a miner. My mum and dad worked practically all their life. Uh, I've got older brother and sisters, so I'm the youngest. And back in them days, you didn't have your mobiles. Um, social media didn't exist. Um, yes, there was computers, but they weren't like the art day with Xboxes and Playstations, online gaming and stuff. So you were always outside and building camps down the woods, going on uh, motorbikes or just building camps, playing armies and stuff like tag, you know, just general kid uh, activities you used to do when, you you know, back in the 90s. And I, I look back now and I, I'm glad I grew up in that era. It was really good because, there was, like I say, there was no mobile phones to say, oh, I'm going to be late. It was as soon as them streetlight comes on, you it doesn't matter where you are, your mum or dad would be stood there at the door watching you come mm. running back or on your bike like a thousand gazelles. Mm. And if you were a minute late, that's it, smacked arse and no tea. <laughs> Just to <laughs> tease you, but it was in the microwave. But uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't have, I wouldn't say strict parents, but I, I was brought up to know what respect and discipline is. Um, but... I always wanted to join the army. From what age? Just young. Like, obviously, you're down the woods and you'd find a, a stick and you, like, shape like a, a rifle. So you would play armies or, you know, the, the old World War films on a Sunday, whether they're black and white or in colour. I used to sit and watch them with my dad. And it just drew me to wanting to join the army at such a young age. And then... I wasn't really a one for school, um, even though I look back now and they're probably the best times of your life. Uh, I didn't really enjoy school. I was a bit of a delinquent, um, to be fair, but I had one goal and that was to join the army. I, I, people say you shouldn't wish your life away, but I, I was, I'm, I'm impatient and I wanted to grow up uh, as quick as I can to so I could join the army. And Did you know anyone who had been in the army when you were a young person? I didn't know. Um, so I've got no like f 
ties. I do have obviously family members uh, who are in the army or were in the army now, um, but at the time I I was oblivious to anyone. I just that's what I wanted to do as soon as I left school. So as soon as you left school, where did you go to get recruited? Um, I just we had a, a local um, army careers office. Uh, it's not there now. Um, so I went there and I wanted to join at the age of 18. So I went to college for a year and just did a uniform service course. And halfway through there, once I think like 17 and a half, you can apply to join the army unless you want to go to Harrogate. And I wanted to literally go to join infantry training in Catrick. And that's only like an hour and a half from me. So it was not too much of a travel distance. What was the training like? Intense. Um, I was a scrawny little 18 year old when I turned up and it basically makes you change the way you think and look at life and it's very determined the training it's it's hard it, it's got to take it to another level in robustness and obviously on a mental and physical level as well and I struggled with injuries um there's a lot to take in but I wanted to join the parachute regiment and obviously pass and pay company um which not many people have achieved and it's such a proud moment to receive your barrier um without wearing the green back and but most importantly when you're on that parade square in front of your family it's such a proud moment and to march off to well, uh, regimental uh, music ride of the Valkyries in front of my family, it was just a, a very happy time of my life. So I lived next to the military town of Aldershot. You never yeah. ended up down there, did you? I didn't know, no. but I've heard some fantastic stories <laughs> from people who were down in Aldershot back in the day, and it's a shame that it's not there anymore. Shout out to the people of Aldershot. <laughs> um, all right, so you go for your training, and then what do they tell you? Um, go to Brian's Norton to do your jumps. Go to do my What's jump. That parachute jumps. Parachute jumps. How yeah. Does that feel jumping out of a plane? Um, a bit nervy at time at first, but take us, first, take us through your first one. My first ever jump. This sounds daft, but. The first person going into the aeroplane is the last person out. And there was no uh, order into which, you know, order you get on the plane on the first jump. So I just, I was a bit nervy. So I've, I'll be the I'll be the last person to get on the plane. Little did I know I was going to be the first out of the plane. So I was like, oh. oh. So my first jump was at 1,000 uh, feet. And I'm stood at the door with a red light on when my parachute uh on and you're seeing uh, the ground moving and you can see cars on the roads and I was buzzing to you know say this a lot of people say um, yeah I was buzzing but actually they're really shitting myself I wasn't at first I was but when, when I was in that door and I can f- see I thought well this is what it's all about you know make or break time that's the thing, you can do all the parachute train past pay company. If you can't jump on an airplane, that's all that <laughs> wasted. And I jumped out and the slipstream, you just have no control. Obviously, the parachute opens, do all your... So when uh, you jump out, do you have to get in a certain position? Well, you kind of 
like jump that, out. Like yeah, this. like kind of holding on. Yeah, yeah. So you, are you going this. out like nose first, or are you f- just, jumping out like just let me jump like that, and then keep keep tight, and then obviously the slipstream takes you away, and then hopefully your parachute opens, and then. <laughs> Do, well, that moment then, do you have to like pull something or press something? No, no, it, it's a static line, so it opens the chute for you. Oh, it does it automatically? Yeah, yeah. How uh, many seconds are you floating before it, it opens? Well, uh, I had no no kit and I was a little light guy. I think I was nine and a half stone wet through at the time. So I was the first out the door and I was definitely not the first to land. <laughs> so I'm just dwindling down and everyone's just falling down. And, and, they're, and they're like... But you let you jumped out first. Why are you not landing first? I was like, I don't know. But uh, it was very enjoyable. Um, uh, jumping at night, that's... Night jumps. A bit tedious. I've landed on my back twice. So I'm, I, the first time it was a bit, ooh, I thought I hurt me uh, vertebrae. But yeah, I was checked and everything. It was just bad bit of a landing and twists. I couldn't kick out my twists in time. And then to say... When you're near enough, once you hit, hit, hear your bergen drop, just accept the landing, and you know hopefully you can bang out a row, keep your your, your knees bent because if you obviously keep your knees straight, you're gonna potentially break your leg. And I've been on a night jump where I've heard people screaming where one guy broke his leg and one lad basically landed on his bergen and broke his ankle. So accidents can happen, <sighs> and it's the risk you take. Wow. But it's enjoyable though. What about firearms training? Um, learning different weapons and the military's good. There's such a, a vast variety of weapons that you, you, you've got to be trained on. Not just a, a pistol or a rifle. You've got to use uh, the Jimpy, uh, the, the you know general purpose machine gun. That's a really good uh, support weapon. And then obviously you've got the 50 cal and the GMG and all that. And they're good weapons, um, but it's you're not normally going to use them all the time unless you're in, like, say, a support company. But using a vast range of weapons is definitely interesting, like, instead of just using one particular weapon. But you've got to be highly skilled on all of them. Which weapons did you enjoy the most? Um, I like using the the, the pistol and um, the, the S80 that is your main weapon um but we went into a different uh role in support of special forces so we end up using a, a demarco canadian m4 uh style weapon and that's so light compared to the sa18 it's it's you know self-cleaning gas parts as well and i think it's a 10 times better weapon to be honest so were you deployed then yes um my first deployment at the age of 19, I'd only been in battalion a couple of months and all the rest of the battalion was doing Northern Ireland pre-deployment train. So I had to do a quick deployment train whilst in Northern Ireland. But for my first, it was one para who I, the battalion of the parachute regiment who I joined, it was their last operation in Northern Ireland. And obviously they're not the most uh, respected parachute regiment uh, battalion in Northern Ireland, but to a lot, they are respected as well. Um, and it was just a, a, an experience, not the best of experience, because obviously it was still, it was kind of more quiet than, say, during the Troubles, but you still 
can't afford to be complacent because the threat is still there. And when you are complacent, that's when things can uh, go wrong. And it was an experience, to say the least. Did you hear about things going wrong? Um, not when I was there, but you, 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 you know, you pick up the history of Northern Ireland and where I was situated in South Armagh, and you get to know all the the current players of different organisations from like Pyra and you know IRA and all the different ones. So you know which operates in different areas and it's it's all a, a learning basis and obviously we're a, a very highly professional outfit so we have to do a very good job and keeping the 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 public knowing that when we're not the bad guys we're there to protect them and they are the bad guys and good job nothing bad happened um when we were there when was your next deployment um a few years later, um, Afghanistan. Um, must have been crazy, was it? It was a massive experience. Um, this is the kind of what joining an infantry unit's all about. Anyone who says, I didn't join the army to go to a war is lying. That's the whole point of joining the army. You don't want to sit in camp all the day. I don't care what anyone says. It's what, you, it's what an army's for to fight wars you don't want to you know because with wars innocents do die and you can lose their uh, companions and work colleagues and especially if you've got to build a good friendship with people you know that I, I worked with um guys who have lost friends and uh, to see people feeling down in the dumps because they believed it should have been them and not them. And it's the, you see the reality of all the bad things, but it was a good experience. Um, I was in via, I was involved in a, a vehicle. Um, I, well, it wasn't an ID as such. It was more of a pressure plate mine designed to, uh, take out a, a walking soldier and, you know, one person gets injured. There's four people out of the game just to, Kazivak came out the way so luckily it just went up the engine block I was the top gunner um, of the the Wimmick which is a soft skin, soft skin Land Rover and it just goes to show how something small can just incapacitate a vehicle and when the guys came round with their metal detectors there was a, a very big so potentially anti-tank mine just to the right so Imagine if we went and parked there, all three of us in that vehicle, and the vehicle would have been mincemeat. And I'm not a, a God-fearing kind of guy or superstitious as such, but you got to think, you know, someone was looking down on when making sure that no one got really injured. On that particular, oper- on that particular operation, a lot of guys in their vehicles were getting hit were, were mines, so... The area that we were in had, I would say, recently had mines put down, especially ours, when you looked at how new and fresh the black electrical tape was. Um, I did have a bit of the, the 105 shell that was used, but the the 
the Royal Engineers, oh, they took it off me because they wanted to do tests and see which I went, this has nearly killed me, I want it. So I was a bit gutted I didn't get to take that one. What were you doing that day? Where were you on patrol? Um, I'm not too sure if we were down in Goresk. I can't remember now. Um, it's just, it all looks the same to me, Afghanistan. Just desert shithole, to be honest. It's little, de- it's just vast desert. And then you'll come across a, a little, you know, couple of mud huts and a little compound and civilians. And obviously the the do the... The Shura talks to try and gain an intel to see if where Al Qaeda and the Taliban is, but they farmers and some of them would say, "No, no, you can't protect us." And I understand where they're coming from. Um, obviously, at the time of being in Afghanistan, I was all, "Yeah, you know, this is what it's all about." But leaving the army and after leaving Afghanistan, you do kind of change. Yeah, your view on it, and I fought Afghanistan, especially when um, you hear about the the MPs and some of the other soldiers getting killed by a rogue gunman from the uh, uh, Afghan police and all that. And we were training up Afghan uh, army and police, and I just couldn't trust them. I I always said they're gonna bite when the in the arse one day and, and proof to be known it has happened on a few occasions and we all saw that in the news and in the papers at the time so we're there to do a job however to me it was just a waste of time when I think of it now I actually just thought if I back then yes great that's what an, an infantry soldier wants to do but I look back now and I just see Afghanistan as just pointless. It's a it's a country that only one person's conquered and that was Alexander Great because he killed everyone. Every, you know, you don't go there. Just let them just let them be. You, it's a inhospitable place. It's a horrible country. It's it's not one to be conquered. They say that soldiers are the fastest to learn these things because they're putting their lives on the line. So they're going to think, why am I putting my life on the line? Is this worth it? Yeah. That's an example of that, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. We're all there to do a job, but when you actually sit back when you're not in your military days and you look back and reflect and you think, did I actually achieve anything? Really, on the grand scheme of things, did we actually achieve anything? Not really. Yeah, we may have taken out a few big players of Al-Qaeda, but it's, you know, they're all hiding in the mountains and trying to get them in the mountains is very difficult. So what did you do after Afghanistan? Um, my last operation before I left in 2010 was Iraq. Iraq, and that was going off as well, wasn't it? It was a bit quieter when we went out there. Um, that obviously, when I was in college... In 2003, when Iraq kicked off, that was another drone point as well. Seen on the news, the military and the British soldiers going across the border and, and all that. And obviously, we'd gone from 16 air assault into special forces support groups. So we changed our role to mirror UKSF on operations. So when I was um, 
out in Iraq, we were working with uh, special forces and go, and we were, you know, working in Baghdad and it was a, a very interesting time. Um, I remember one particular time, Christmas Day. What a long day that was, just in an alley. <laughs> For hours, bouncing on to different places because the intel's you know, yeah, there's potential bad guy here, let's go there, and it's, you know, wrong information, and you're actually kicking the door down to some old uh, granny, and you're like, all right, here's some money for your damage, and bye. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was, like I say, I, I, the three operations I went when I was in the parachute regiment were all different. You know, you got, obviously... Northern Ireland, you've got your Afghanistan, you've got so your Baghdad, so rural, desert, and uh, built-up areas. So I think I was, with Afghanistan, because it's so vast, you can see, yes, and then big, the big threat there is obviously the shooting scoot and the IEDs. With Iraq, you've got snipers and built-up areas. Mm. So yeah, constantly you can't just sit and chill even when you're chilling you've got to still be vigilant and uh yeah that was it was interesting to say the least besides the explosion when was the point you thought your life was most at risk or most dangerous moment that in with the snipers apart from me being blown up in the vehicle the snipers yeah um we were doing a job where we had to go to the hospital and the courtyard that we were parked up in, it was just snipe, snipe. If you were a sniper, you could have just picked it off. It was that. I was like, never too far away from my vehicle because I was one of the drivers anyways. Um, I was never too far away so because the vehicle acted as uh, protection. Um and then, obviously, one of the locals came out with boiled goat or God knows what, and I was starving, so I ate it, so I probably gave myself food poisoning in the process. <laughs> Why did you leave the military? Uh, challenge, different challenge. A lot of the guys that I served with were doing the same, going into close protection, working in Afghanistan, Iraq, Africa, and... I was out and a, a guy that I served with says, have you heard of uh, anti-piracy? I went, what do you mean, pirates? He went, well, yeah, but not your Captain Jack Sparrow kind of pirates. We're on about Somali pirates hijacking vessels for ransom around the Gulf of Aden and Horn of Africa. Are you interested? I was like, yeah, because that was starting to, bloom and people say oh yeah yeah it's all about money well every job's all about money but the money was fantastic but i'm getting to go to different countries getting to see different cultures of crew yes the job itself was somewhat mundane when you're on the the sea because it's so vast the ocean you might not come into contact with another vessel and if you do it's probably a container ship going past you 20 knots where you're going about 10 and you think I wish I was on that <laughs> but I, I went and done my courses but I went and done my course 
for close protection as well. So I wasn't just putting all my eggs, you know, I was making sure that I'm not just focusing on one. I've got both. So obviously maritime came calling before close protection on land. So I went and done that and I, I enjoyed it. And then uh, obviously went Pete Tong at some point. So anti-piracy then, what can you make doing that for a month? What's the pay? <clears throat> well, when I was doing it, I did a job, I think it was about a week. I got £4,000. Wow. But uh, majority of the time you get paid in dollars. Yeah. yeah. So, and obviously other, other companies paid different. Like, I was getting £200 a day. I, I'm, I'm not a greedy man. I always said, I've always said to myself, if I can earn more than what I did in the army, I'm happy. I was definitely earning more than that. <laughs> so is anti-piracy then, are you protecting ships or do you get called in when like pirates are in an area or does an, an attack's happened or? Yeah, basically go to a port. So you'll fly from the UK, say for a particular job, we flew to Durban. Got the spent a day or two in Durban. Wait for the vessel to come into port. Boarded the vessel. Went up uh, the east coast of Africa, uh, and went in to the um, uh, went actually to India to drop its cargo off, and then from India to Muscat, and we disembarked at Muscat. So you can go that way, or you can go through the Suez Canal and through the IRTC and say yeah final destination say from the Suez Canal to Sri Lanka so you're there as a deterrent <clears throat> um, just to prevent piracy <clears throat> you would hear recent attacks you would sometimes may hear on the radio a attack or suspicious vessels in the area up to no good um I personally haven't been involved with any attacks, which is good because it goes to show that having guards, armed guards on vessels is a purpose and it does the job. However, when I was coming down the Red Sea and you're getting towards, you know, around Djibouti area when you, before you're coming into the IRTC corridor, you've got little islands and that's where these hide. So we had like we passed a vessel, uh, looking. You've got to look for our weapons, grappling hooks, ladders. Couldn't see anything, but they're the they're the guys that inform the guys hiding with the weapons. So they'll basically send a text: "Don't get that vessel. There's guards. Oh, there's a next one. No guards. Any vessel that comes near you, you've got so many protocols to go through before you even pull a trigger." It's not like being on land and in the in the military, where if you literally feel your life is at threat or someone fires, you've got to be quick and act. on the sea. You've got you've got so much time unless they come straight at your guns blazing, and then you you go into a state uh, where you respond and take you know fire and positions and you know take the enemy fight back to the enemy. But they're all on cat. They're off their faces. You're on a sturdy platform. They're bobbing around in the ocean. The, there's, there's been no successful hijacking where armed guards have been on board. And if there is, they shouldn't be doing their job. 
What's that movie? Captain Phillips. We had uh, support from the real Captain Phillips. He did a an interview for my local uh, news ITV, Tang Tees. They got in touch with him and he did a Skype interview and he was saying armed guards need to be on these vessels. If we had armed guards on our vessel, we wouldn't have been hijacked. Simple as that. We've repelled them. Yeah. So he was in definite support of our job. All right. So the job that took you to India that led to the incarceration, what was that? Um, so we'd already done a previous transit, which that's what we call when you're on the client vessels going from point A to point B. So we went from uh, Kuwait down to Sri Lanka, flew back up to Muscat, boarded my vessel at Muscat, and we're going back to Sri Lanka. Our company had support vessels, which instead of going on land, you would board these vessels, hand in your kit, weapon, and equipment to the TDO, the tactical deployment officer, who organises client vessels for guards to go on and off. A couple of days into our trip, we were told we would be boarding that vessel and, you know, we boarded the vessel after four or five days. Spent about six days on this vessel, sunbathing, chilling, fishing, you know, getting a few squid, getting the chef to chop it up and cook it for you. It's one of those things. I've I've been in Afghanistan and the desert. I can survive on the ship in the middle of a, an ocean. So, yeah, yeah. The good thing about being ex-military, you learn to appreciate things, and you 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 know you you stay and live in horrible places, and you make the best out of it. So yes, this vessel wasn't the best, but it was better than nothing. And then we ceased operations because we needed fuel and provisions. So obviously the company gets in, the vessel gets in touch with the company, company gets in touch with a local agent. And we organised fuel and provisions off the coast of India, on the southeast coast, around the Gulf of Manan. Obviously there was a, a cyclone which pushed us closer to India than where we should have been. But under maritime law, you can seek shelter from cyclones, storms, etc., to a neighbouring country, which we did, and we had no intentions of going to India. A vessel was going to be bringing the fuel and provisions. And then we were taking fuel on the 12th of October 2013. Sea state was quite choppy, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to bed. And then the next morning we were kind of woken up by the TDO saying we'd been boarded by the Indian Coast Guard and we were at gunpoint by the uh, Coast Guard vessel and being told to go to the port of Tutakarin. What's the legality of that, or just boarding you? They didn't say nothing. Yeah. They just boarded the vessel. So how did they know we were there? For starters, especially when you look at all the paperwork that they came up with and they were saying, well, my uh, radar's not been working for three months. And another guy goes, my radar's not been working for six months. And we're scratching my heads thinking, 
Well, how the hell did you know where we are? Only certain people knew where we were. But you don't think of that at that time. You're just thinking, well, we know this kind of happens in these parts of the world where corruption's rife and the the know what we, we do and the know it's big bucks and they just want a little, little handout. Shake down. Yeah. Anyone who works in private security, you, you've we've all dealt with it. Or your passport looks a bit frayed. Ooh, mm. You know, and that happened to a, a friend of mine. His passport was frayed and the company went, asked them how much they want. $4,000 later, right? Paperwork signed, off you go. We got escorted and we're only maybe an hour and a half away, but it took longer because our vessel was going so slow. And I raised this question. I said, why are we going slow if we're so close? And he went, I don't know. He's not even telling when he's just saying drive. There are there was no cooperation. They just boarded when you could say seized us, but under what grounds? And we got to the port, and there was a welcome committee. You got the the people who work at the port. You had media. You had different organisations, and these organisations, some of them came as far as Mumbai, and we're kind of scratching our head, but not really thinking too much of it at the time, as to, hang on a minute, how are these people getting here? Why is our media here? You know, like, if a vessel's been spotted on the radar and it looks suspicious, the Coast Guard will go out, find out what's going on, they'll board it, see if there's any problems, and then maybe reboard and go away. But they just boarded us and said, right, port now. And then there was a massive welcome committee there, and we're like, hang on, what's going on here? What is going on here? And we were just kind of told, like, keep out of the way, and it was just manic. We literally had to provide a guard to stop the masses coming on this, because they have no concept of... Space, they have no concept of safety. These people just bombarded the vessel, and I'm thinking, you're going to capsize one. So we had to base, and we didn't even know who these people were. It, it, so we had to start asking for ID, right? Who are you? Oh, we're such, no, you can't come on. Oh, I'm such, an, I'm not going to, I'm not, just, and we're like, you're trying to talk with people in broken English. Well, who are you? Well, you're not coming on. And it was just manic, different organisations. So we were told to keep out the way and like the TGO and a few other uh, senior people, like guards and all that, um, were showing the police organisations, maritime organisations, were kit and equipment. The captain hid in his cabin, <laughs> refused to speak to the police, which made matters worse. <laughs> Who owns the boat? The company. What was the company? An com- American company called Advent Fort. So it was an American company owned boat. Isn't this like an act of war if another country just jacks your boat? Well, it, it kind of looked like that. It, it was like a seizure exercise. <laughs> we were technically kidnapped. Couldn't the Americans have been like, what the fuck are you doing? Well, it was, it was, your port bombing right now. <laughs> the thing is, um, the the. The company owners, Jordanian slash American. 
Ah, so there was... So it was a dual national. Um, and the Americans didn't... We heard rumours that Barack Obama, the president at the time, got in touch with the then Prime Minister of India, Mohan Singh, to ask to release us. Because of India, such a police state-run country, and we were in the worst state of India, Tamil Nadu, and the pref- and the previous chief minister, and I'm not going to say I hope she rests in peace, I hope she rots in hell, because she was a horrible, nasty woman, very anti-British, uh, chief minister, Jayali fan. She turned around and apparently said to the Indian prime minister, no, I'm not releasing them. Yeah. But we don't know if this is legitimate. It's just something we heard. So and you guys were like a meal ticket then for all these different agencies. Yeah, and all these agencies were just going, well, there's nothing to be had here. So whatever the, these companies have been told, they've been told in in prior warning to get to from wherever they've come from into Tutakarin because there's no way they could have gotten there in a couple hours. <laughs> Not a million chance on earth that was going to happen, especially when some of these companies came from Mumbai. And that's about 18 to 20-odd hours on a train, one way. So the meal ticket story must have been circulating for days for all of them. We believe there was rumours that the second officer, he because we were close enough... The Indians could pick up their phone signal and I couldn't use my SIM card. Don't know why, but I could. I, once I got the port, I was able to use it. And um, we, belie- we believe the rumours that were told, the second officer hadn't been paid and he wanted off the weapon. So there was rumours he could have said, oh, they're ho- they've got weapons, they're, ho- they're not letting us well, leave. he was Indian, was he? He was Indian, a national, uh, and he got apparently in touch with the, the port authorities. So disgruntled employee. However. Kind of like snitched. Yes, that was one of the rumours. The other one, which I believe more of, is the agent, who was also an Indian national, especially when we come to the trial and all the money that was transferred from the company to the agent. Rough guess, like I say, I, I had nothing to read. I think it was about $40,000 to organise fuel and pr- provisions. Apparently only 11000 of that was spent. So where d- was the rest of this money? What does an agent do? He, he gets given this money. He'll organise us going from vessel to vessel. and He's not on the vessel. No, he's not on the vessel. He'll organise us going from vessel to vessel and pick them up and making sure paperwork's all done and passports and seamen's books and and organise the fuel, go to the companies. So what they were doing is they were going to a company and saying, well, do you know anyone who can do it cheaper? So out of $40,000, only 11000 was spent. So where the hell's the rest of this money? I believe he's kept it to buy his green card because he was on the vessel. Well, the police, and I've got video evidence, which I showed the media when I got came home. He's laughing and joking with the police. And this is a person that's supposed to be representing us. Yeah, he didn't look 
very concerned to me. So he was clearly in it. He's paid his meal ticket in f- of freedom, and we've paid the price. So he's jacked all that money and then dropped a dime to just get the whole thing jacked. Yeah, but the whole the whole thing was it shouldn't have happened, and the reason why it did happen is because India was still really majorly upset that in it was January two thousand and twelve, two Italian Marines working for the Italian Navy doing maritime operations, similar role to what our Royal Marines do for the Royal Navy. Um, they killed two. Indian fishermen off the coast of Kerala, but there was no evidence against them. The, the literally know they killed them, but there's no witnesses, nothing, and they couldn't punish them. And we were their scapegoats. So we some... were made an example of, and at the time, India were kicked off the maritime uh, duties because they were going around just murdering fishermen and saying, what? oh... They're, they're pirates. They were they clearly weren't. And they were saying, well, we can, you know, the way India acts, because it's the Indian Ocean, it belongs to us. We can patrol it. We want the, the high-risk area moved from, I think it was 74 degrees uh, east to 70 or 60-odd degree. And they were just kicking up such a shitstorm. And basically, it just all spiralled and out of out of that and they were just waiting. So, yes, it happened to us, but it also could have happened to others because the ports were getting greedy, especially Sri Lanka. So more and more uh, maritime companies were investing and looking at supply vessels, just like our company did, to save money, obviously. So you're on the vessel. You've been inundated with so many people. It's you, You're worried it's going to capsize the vessel. Are, they, are these people like saying we are boarding because we are this authority and we are looking for this? Are they saying what they're doing? They're just saying we're this authority and we've, we're investigating and we want to see blah, blah. The big thing was apparently illegal weapons um, and straying into Indian waters, which was kind of struck off because, well, Indian maritime law, world maritime law, well, we used the cyclone. We were seeking shelter. We had no interest of going to India, so we didn't have to inform the Port Authority. If memory serves me well, if you're going to port in a country, you've got to give the Port Authority, I think, 72 or 92 hours notice. We didn't need to do that because we weren't going to port, and every vessel has a classification in going to port, our vessel, with its classification, couldn't go to that particular port. So we had no option to get a vessel to come to us. So it's all they spinning to the meat, their own media. And I've got evidence. And and they were saying we're gonna selling weapons to fishermen. We're going to do a Mumbai-style attack <laughs> on the nuclear power plant. <laughs> The Admiral of the Indian Navy was saying publicly, we've got them, we've got them, and we're in prison scratching my head, reading the newspaper, going, what do you mean you've got them? Who do you believe we are? Before we get there, then, when you're on the vessel, when did you notice it was going seriously wrong? Like, when they found the wep- some uh, weapons, did they, like, we, gra- we always, arrest you guys? We were always shown the weapons. 
We had nothing to hide. You showed them the weapons. We showed them the weapons. Yeah. And on day... F- and who, who did you show the weapons to specifically? Every organisation, but the, the local boys who took it upon themselves to say they found these <laughs> weapons was called Q-Branch. <laughs> and any James Bond fan will know that's what Q-Branch is. And they've just copied it because they're idiots. And they went, we found weapons... And the woman in charge of the investigation was, like, totally clueless. You know, we've got weapon states, like, box is green, weapons unloaded, not made ready, packed away. And then you've got, say, amber, black, red, different colour codes for different state levels of the weapons, and she's going, well, I don't see any green boxes, and we're going, oh, no, man, because most of the pelly boxes were... Uh, tanned or black and we're going oh man we are learning and we're like you're not learning quick enough (laughs) and it was just obviously I was kept out the way but we were getting briefed up on how each day was going by where were you where were you taken to and like how did they get you off the vessel? Well, we were in, so we're on this vessel for six days. We're in port for six days on day four. Like a house arrest thing. Yes, we're on on day four, they removed the weapons. Okay. And where and that's when it started to look a bit, mm, what's going on here? They've literally removed 35 weapons. The thing is, there was 35 weapons, there was 35 personnel, but only 25 people were guards who could actually use these weapons. So the Indian authorities put two and two together and come up with a million. If there was a cat or dog on that vessel, they would have arrested them. Simple as that. They were stupid. And to get us off the vessel, they said, you are going to hospital for checkup. They didn't... I would have preferred it if they went, we are arresting you on suspicion of illegal firearms. But they went, you're going to hospital for checkup. And we're like... But if you believe we're sick with anything, why would you take off the vessel? You get the medical people to come to the vessel and check over. But we, we're, we're not stupid. We're, we're professional outfit. And what we did is we went, right, guys, we're getting arrested. Put your uniform on so you look presentable because there's media and it just shows a bit of professionalism. What uniforms did you have? Just obviously we're, we're company uh, T-shirt with the company logo on and obviously uh, tanned or black trousers and et cetera, so... And we're dealing with, like, 30, 40-odd degree heat as well, so... And the ship wasn't the best uh, air-conned vessel either, so it was horrible. And then, obviously, we had to, you know, do our phone calls because they took off the vessel at daft o'clock in the morning, so UK time, which was four and a half hours behind, people were asleep. Obviously, prior to this, we've informed the embassy, informed the company kept with family and just saying, no, it's just paperwork. Don't worry, it's, this happens. And then I had to make that phone call and I tried to make my phone call to my sister first because she was a bit more hands-on. Me, me mum and dad are in the, uh, they were in the seven, 60s and 70s and, you know, I'd seven years onto that. What's your sister's reaction? Shocked because she didn't really know the th- this kind of happens. You know, when you're doing that job, you you tend to not really inform your family too much. It's like, can you drop us off at the airport? I'll see you in a couple of months. I'll come back with tan. 
scraggy hair <laughs> they go oh. <laughs> uh, but um i made the phone call my sister didn't answer and i had i rung my mum oh god that must have been rough my mum had sleeping tablets didn't kick in so she was kind of in and out of sleep and um i wish now i never made that call i wish i just kept bombarding me sister <sighs> But when I rung me mum, it was like, mum, I'm, you know, I'm, we're getting arrested and I'm, I love you and I, don't worry about me, I'll look after myself. I don't know when I'll next see you again, but they're, they're arresting when that was the last ever time I was able to have a some sort of conversation with me mum. Oh, my God. Um, and then as soon as I finished speaking to her, my sister rung his back and I said, Lisa, they're arresting me. And pardon me, French, yeah, and I said, get the fucking embassy now. Simple as that. She says, right, I'm ringing. And you, you, if you imagine you've got six British families bombarding the foreign office on the 18th of October, 2013. Roma being the embassy were refused to come portside. When we were taken to the police station, we had no agent which could, which could have acted as a translator. The embassy couldn't gain access to her. Luckily, one of the Indian crew members was from Tamil Nadu. So not only is he getting arrested, he's acting as a translator. And I, and it wasn't just six British. We had 14 Estonians and three Ukrainians. Some of the Estonians and Ukrainians could speak a bit of English, but majority it was Estonian and Russian. So he's then trans, listening to what they're saying in Tamil, speaking to us in English, and then speaking to English to some of the Estonian English speakers, then they would then have to translate... It was a long process. It was cramped when this little room, so there's 35 in this little room, we were given the odd bottle of water. We were never given uh, any food. We knew we were getting arrested because they said, you can't take your belt, you can't take your phone, you can't take your wallet. One of the guys couldn't take his reading glasses. Like, he's saying, I can't read. No, no, you're not allowed. Did they just jack all your belongings? They left our belongings on the, the vessel. Did they steal it all? They didn't, but they were definitely sporting because my bag was opened. However, they didn't nick my laptop or uh, mobile phone because we put them in the, the secure room and uh, locked away. And then the Tejo hid the keys. But for over one year, we were out without our belongings because they were saying it's part of the investigation. I said, what, so my socks and underwear are part of the investigation? Are you are you taking the piss? You know, I had to do a court order to get my kit and equipment back. How long are you in that room for? Um, Practically all day. It was pr nearly dark when we left the prison, uh, the police station, sorry. We went to court. Court was closed. Went around the back. Some guy came out in a suit, waffled some shite, got back on the bus... And then we went to our first port of call, which was 
the lovely five-star accommodation of Palum Courty Prison. And this prison was so daunting from the outside, big, massive iron gates, and you looked at the date, and you and, you, and I'm, I'm quite good with my history, and I looked at the date, and I thought, this was built under British rule. Oh, wow. With Indian slaves, and six British are coming here. Oh. And I was just like, oh, no, man. And when we got in that prison, oh. the prison guards, once they found out there's British, they were, you could more or less see them doing cartwheels. There was because yeah. in I, I was told by certain Indians from when I was out of prison that I befriended like in, from the gym and all that. You, they were like, "You're in an anti-British state." Tamil Nadu is what the probably the worst state in India alone. They said, "If you were anywhere else, this wouldn't be happening to you." It's just I think they're so British, and obviously at the time there was the UK India trade deals as well, and. It was just a massive political night. We were political pawns at the end of the day. So go on, keep going. What happens next? So we came into this prison and it was so daunting. Get given two bed sheets and a, a metal plate and a metal mug. And they gave her a bit of food, which I can't even describe what the hell it was. A couple of boiled eggs, boiled uh, Boiled potatoes, which were still raw in the middle, so they can't even cook a jack of potato. Uh, it was just this big, this smallish room. We were able to space out a bit and like a, 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 we called it a trough where you could go and use the toilet and wash. There was little buckets around. Um, lucky we only stayed there for a few short days. Um, the first night, the chief engineer tried to hang himself with his bed sheet. Whoa. Yeah, he, what country was he from? You, he was from the Ukraine. Oh dear, and what was what was his story then? I don't know. I just mm. I think he was thinking, shit, what's going on here? And he just he got his spreadsheet and tied it on the do- on the railings and just tried to hang himself and he was flapping around and making noise and it kinda woke a few people and then everyone, a few of the guys kinda manhandled and to take, you know, and calm him down and you know he did a try. He, tr- he tried it again um, at the other prison, but then he kind of got a slap and said, "Listen, cut your shit out. <laughs> You're not doing any favors, you know." Cut, and then he, 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 he so that's he, not very good for the mor- morale of the team, is no, it? No, no. Um, and he wasn't the youngest guy. He was in his sixties as well. So, mm. you know, but he, he was off his he was off his head, man. But that's what prison does to you. Yeah, it makes it, you crazy, isn't it? If you're it not does make you crazy if yeah, you don't yeah. keep your head on your shoulders. Uh, the the 12 Indians remained in that prison and that's the prison they stayed in. Why they remained there, I don't know. It's, I think it's because they could segregate them from the rest of the Indian population. If they went with the local population, they would have been probably beat, if not worse. Um, We were shipped what, up. Like, like they viewed them as traitors or something? Yeah, or... Yeah especially with all the, the rumours and the newspapers saying, you know, imagine local Indians attacking your own nuclear power station, doing like a Mumbai-style oh attack when oh it was the, the Pakistanis coming down and attacking Mumbai. Oh, shit. Uh, you know, so... And just reading stuff in the newspaper where a monkey crossed over the border between India and Pakistan and the Indians arrested it and thought it was a spy, so... It's actually crackers in India. They are off their faces. I, I saw your story in the news headlines. I'm sorry for laughing. 
I didn't know how surreal and crazy it all is. No, it's, it, it is. It's you, mind-blowing. It's, it's ridiculous. People have said to me, Nick, have you exaggerated in your book at all? I said, no. I don't, don't need to. I don't need to. If anyone's been in India for a length, of, a bit of a length of time, you know it's absolutely crazy. It, the, if if the UK health and safety went over to India, they'd close the country down. It's just diabolical. They're, they're mental, man. But some of them, you know, that I came across, very lovely people, very lovely people. My ex-partner, she's uh, from the northeast of India, Assam. So, you know, um, so they're not all bad. Just obviously the the politicians and the police, they're the, they're the criminals, the true criminals. So you've got your team members attempted to commit suicide. You've got him down. What happens next? Um, we were, Like I say, we were only there for a couple of days and then we went up to saw the 23 foreigners out of the 35. We got a bus journey, which nearly took 14 hours. And you know what the Indians are like on the road. There's no speed concept. They just drive as fast as they can in the most ridiculous manner. Well, there's some big slopes. And they had weapons and the bus was cramped. So you picture a bus with 23 of us on and some of the Estonians were big burly guys. You've got the equal amount of Indians with weapons and they're falling asleep. We're not even handcuffed. And people have asked me, could you have taken over that bus? I said, yes, we could have. But what the hell is 23 foreigners going go? to do go? in an Indian country where we're going to stand out like a sore thumb? <laughs> Most of these people in Tamil Nadu have never seen a white guy before. It would be different if it were in Goa or Mumbai or Delhi where it's a bit more westernised. We're literally in a place where... It's not a Rambo movie. Uh, you know, and <laughs> we were always... Because you don't know the state of these weapons and they're falling asleep with weapons and one... One of the weapons went near my face and I was I was shitting myself. Because imagine if we hit a bump in the road and he pulls his trigger, I could have my head blown off, man. Oh, and honestly, we're screaming, slow this bus down, slow this bus down, you fucking lunatics. We were nerve-wracking. So you're, you're, getting, you're getting a bus journey from Tutakarin to Chennai on one half of your mind, you're trying to not die with these idiots with our weapons. And on the other half of your brain, you're trying to just come to terms of what the fuck is going on. Your family's going through your mind. You're sat there, you're thinking, shit, is this real? Oh, man, have I bumped my head on this vessel and I've been knocked down? This is a nightmare. We were literally living a nightmare, simple as that. Where did the bus take you to? The bus took me to Chennai, Punzal Prison. The Remand prison. That so, is why you call the Chennai Six, because the prison is Chennai. It's Yeah, we were in the city of Chennai, the actual where the prison is. It's a little town called Puzal. Puzal. Puzal, yes. And Central Prison 2, which is the Remand prison. And next door to that is Central Prison 1, where you've been convicted, you would go there. So this prison, and when you walk in the gates, you see a sign and it's... it's telling you the state of how many people, and it's like max capacity, what, 1,500 actual people, 3,500, you're thinking, the fucking prison's overrun, and you're thinking, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, so we, we went to the, uh, where the, it was now, this prison's massive, 
it took from the main gate to our compound where there was other foreign nationals, nearly a mile and a half. Wow. Um, and we arrived uh, at night, so everyone was locked up, and we so we couldn't get with bearings. We were just thrown in these cells, all in this compound together. So three guys into one, four into another, and just equally spaced out. And the next morning, obviously, everything was unlocked and you're, you're thinking, shit, we're in prison here. And we're so uh, Sri Lankan, Tamil Tigers, there was uh, Nigerian uh, drug dealers, there was uh, Iranian drug dealers, there was just different, all different criminals from different uh, nationalities. And, you know, you have a saying, keep your... You know, friends close, your enemies closer. You can't go in prison life and not try and build a rapport because they have been here. They know the score. You've just been thrown in. Help me help you. You know, and they always look at the white man in these countries as rich with money. So they were can you get this? Can you? And then when the when they started reading the newspaper saying we've been arrested, you had the Nigerians come up. Do you, can you get any contacts for uh, weapons? And we're like, mate, we're not even. Don't read that bullshit in the newspaper. They're chatting shit. <laughs> oh, sorry, just to mention weapons and your mercenaries. I said, for starters, we're not mercenaries. <laughs> not a chance. We're far from it. You know that's what a lot of people don't understand. Private security. And mercenaries, they can't differentiate the two. So usually when people get arrested and they're in foreign prisons, they click up with the Brits, but there were no Brits? No, we were the first Brits in that prison. And I'm hoping the last. <laughs> because it's a godforsaken place. Yeah, we, we, we played volley. There was actually a volleyball court, so we used to play volleyball with the Schlankens. Um, we played cricket with them. Uh, they actually carved... A, a cricket bat out of a tree. Um, there was the uh, there was obviously drugs getting used. There was obviously heroin getting used, cannabis. You know, mobiles getting used. Prison life in it. How did the guards treat you? The guards were okay. They were kind of. We've never had these kind of people, and there was twenty three of us. So. And we're quite big, burly guys, majority of the, us as well. So they were scrawny little streaks of piss. So they were probably more scared of us than us being scared of them. And they walk around with lattes. And What's a lattie? It's a, a, a wooden stick and they literally beat the prisoners with. I. There was a big drug bust fight and they got the culprits. And I literally was going down to the jailer's mm. office one day to try and post a letter, which never got posted, got left in his drawer. Um, and there was four, four or five guys and what they do is they hit your collarbone to bring you down and they'll hit your hip and get you down and they'll take your knees out and then on the soles of your feet, whack, so you can't run away. And these Indians were bloodied, black, blue, screaming. I've never heard people getting hit with a stick so hard in my life. And this is an Indian prison. If, imagine if that, I know the UK prisons, there is certain things that happen there. You can't say 
we're good as gold in our prisons, but most of them probably deserve it. These probably deserve it. They caused a riot and and drugs were involved, but the way they go about it, the Indians, they don't muck about. And I was and my family were especially when my sister came to visit me on her last visit, one of the Indians was getting braided with a latty stick. And I said to my sister, don't look. What does she do? She looks. What's the last imprint in her memory when she leaves the prison to fly back to the UK is my brother getting hit with his sticks. And I had to reassure in a letter that, no, we we never were harmed by any of the guards. I think because of the nature of having British personnel, was it saved and because we were a big group and it wouldn't look good on the superintendent. A lot of the other guys didn't think that the same way as me. I always maintained that if one of us gets seriously unwell or injured or worse, dies, we will be out this prison before Waffy touch the floor. And how we come about leaving this prison is proof of that. Wow. What else? What's the craziest things you saw in there? Um, I saw one of the Indians with his throat slit. Over, what was that over? I don't know. Probably a fight. And he's been he's had his throat slit, so he's got claret spit, spurting all out. He's screaming. No guards. Nowhere to be seen. They don't care. They would urinate all around. They're like animals. It was stinking. Pissing shit. Who's um, they? The Indian prisoners. Just piss everywhere. They just and piss. shit everywhere. Yeah. No 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 care. And this is out when they can go out and use their, their toilets, but their toilets is all smashed up and everything. And I've got pictures of the public toilets that you can access and look on my own social media. And and I wasn't obviously able to get st- stuff from the first prison, but it, all the pictures are from when we were convicted in the second prison. The first prison, the conditions was hellish. Were I've never lost so much weight in such a short space of time. I know 10 kilograms in six months. Some people may think, well, that's not a lot. It is in an unhealthy way. Scratting for nearly one meal a day. Is that at the Palamkoti prison? No, that was in Chennai. Oh, so you have you, you, go, yeah, to, you yeah. go to another prison after Chennai? So from Palamkoti, we were there for a couple of days. Yeah. Then we moved up to spend six months in Chennai. Then we got bail. So for nearly three of nearly three four months of our time in in the remand prison, we had no information. We didn't even know what the hell we were arrested for. There was nothing, no nothing. The, the embassy didn't even know what was going on. And then we finally got word that yeah, you're going to get bail. But then they've gone to the high court and said the six weapons of the thirty five were illegal and they were prohibited. And we're like, hang on a minute, the same weapons that you're saying are illegal were in Mumbai, all accredited, tickety-boo, one month previously to our arrest. So how can one minute they be legal, next minute you say they're illegal? And that's how they cancelled our bail. All right, so you got your bail... We got our bail. Does yeah. that mean you got freed to the local area? Yes. Um, the, for us to get bail, because we're foreign nationals, there was a lot of things to be put in place. 
like reassurance uh, from embassies that we wouldn't do a runner. And we had to sign bail twice a day at the local police station. So that was, so your days, you, you were always clock, kind of clock watching. And uh, I can't even knock me a bottle of water here. <laughs> was it a relief, though, to be in the local area instead of in the prison? Yes, because we were staying at the hotel that the company paid for. Um, and I was able to speak to my family. That's good. They must have been worried out of their minds, but relieved as well. And obviously, with it becoming an international incident, our media have got branches all around the world. And uh, the Indians working for ITV got in touch with ITV. So a lot of people might have thought my sister went to the media. That wasn't the case. The media went to my sister. Obviously, the... It's amazing what you can do if you use your head. You can find anyone and get in contact with anyone. And they got in contact with my sister. And obviously my sister has never been involved with anything like this, media or whatnot. And she made a promise to my family and myself that she would do everything in her power to raise that much awareness of the injustice that we were served. And she was pushing the local MPs to push the government and things were happening. And obviously we got bail. The media came out to the prison and I'm not a, a big pop fan, especially Coke, but for six months to drink a ice cold bottle of pop, it never touched the sides. Because I'm drinking warm, look water for six months because you couldn't keep it cool. And obviously, we went to the hotel, um, did a bit of media, spoke to my family on Skype. You can imagine the emotions there. And then we're obviously getting told, right, we've got to now go to the police station twice a day. We did that for a few months and it was good, you know. Get, getting your bearings around Chennai. Or could you go out around Chennai? Yeah, we, were, we, were, we weren't confined to a hotel room. So I, I, the, I'm into my fitness and, and I know Indians are really gone gym crazy. So I, the first thing I wanted to do was find where the gym was and how much and what the kit and equipment were to, as close as to my hotel as possible. Um, once we were doing what... Um, Signing bail, we had a court case going through the high court, etc. And in July 2014, the case was quashed. All charges for us was dropped. However, they still wouldn't let our passports back to us and they still wouldn't let we're out the country. And we had meetings with the British government. They came round from New, New Delhi and we had letters from our lawyers stating Indian law saying during the 90-day appeal process, we do not require to remain in India, get us home. And the British government delegates said to us, we don't believe they will appeal. And we're sat there gobsmacked. And we're like, you've not been dealing with these people. You've not been in prison. <laughs> For a crime you've not committed. What do you mean you think they'll not appeal? Well, guess what? On day 88, two days before 
The nightmare would have been ended and I would have jumped on a plane. Mm. They put an appeal into the Supreme Court. So we felt like we just had a sucker punch. Imagine what the families felt. All 35 of them. They were distraught. They just felt, is this a new chapter in hell that they're going to have to go through? Mind, my mum, during prison, five days before Christmas 2013, suffered a double aneurysm and nearly died. Jesus. And that was brought on, the surgeons and the doctor said, through stress of me being in prison. Yeah. So I'm getting a letter. Like, I remember being in prison and one of the guys got told to stay behind at the end. And it's because his mum and uh, his, his dad and his uh, brother and his sister, uh, girlfriend came out to see him. And he came back to the cell happy as Larry because I shared a cell with him. And this, this happened to me and I was, I was sat there like a Cheshire cat because I thought, someone's coming to see us, I'm getting to visit my sister, maybe my sister's coming to see us. Um, I know my mum, I, I didn't want my parents to come and see us because it's not nice having your parents. Um, it's not an experience they would want to see. Um, so I, I thought my sister was coming and then I'm sat there with a smile in front of the, the lass from the embassy and she just looked at us and her face said it all. She says, Nick, I have to give you this letter. To this day, I don't even know what this letter all says. You know, when words start jumping out and it was my sister repeatedly saying in this letter, don't worry, don't worry, she's okay. She's okay. Well, she wasn't okay, was she? Because she's just had a double aneurysm and my mum is in a hospital fighting for life. And I'm in a fucking prison for a crime I've not committed and you're telling me, don't worry. So I'm now walking back nearly a mile and a half to me compound. I'm battling the red mist. For anyone who doesn't know what the red mist is, it's a military term that we use. It's when you just lose control. So I'm battling that. I'm getting Indians. I'm walking through a tunnel vision. I've got Indians throwing stones at us, hurling abuse. Obviously, I couldn't understand what they were saying, but the tone of what they were saying, it was abuse. I heard the odd white man, blah, blah, and all this, and, you know, all the abuse, certain English swear words they were saying. It was horrible. And uh, I couldn't feel the pain because the pain that I was feeling was 10 times greater. And I remember walking into the compound and I saw one of the Brit guys and I just broke down and he took us away and we're talking. I said, I can't do this. My world's just fell apart because, you know, I'm a I'm a mammy's boy. To be, to be honest, I, I love me man the best. I love my family the best. And I'm 5,000 miles from home in a prison for a crime I've not committed and my mum's lying in a hospital bed fighting for her life. And how do I, how, how do I digest this? What do I do? Do I just lose control and just make matters worse? I'm a professional, so I, I controlled myself. How I did it, I don't know. Something deep inside me says, no, your mum certainly wouldn't want this. You don't want this. And, you know... We, we get by the days and like I say, going back to us being out of prison. And that was like one of the, that probably the worst times in the whole four years of me being in India, having to read that letter and, you know, it's not nice because you just don't know what to do and what to think. And like, 
you're in a prison where you you haven't been sentenced, so you don't even know how long you're going to be here for. And you, you're asking one or the other prison how long you've been. Oh, I've been here two years. And they're still in remand. And you're, you're thinking, so I'm going to be, I could be here for two years without even my case going to court for a trial. And you're thinking, how long is this going to take? So are you saying then that you were in a prison, you got out on bail, bail was cancelled, there was an appeal, and you had to go back into the prison? Well, once they appealed, we had a date in July 2015 to start a trial. So we were still living out. And we said on week one, day one, in the in Palum County Prison, when the embassy came to visit, were, if this goes to trial, it'll be here in the lion's den and we will get convicted. We didn't think that was going to happen at the time, but when they appealed and... It went up to Supreme Court and we, as time goes on, you you become a split faction, you know, you, 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 arguments happen with each other, disagreements, that's going to happen. You're all missing your family. You're, you're not getting paid. You're, you're living on handouts. Like I say, I, I, I thank um, the Parachute Regiment, um, the Army Benevolent Fund, par, uh, Prisoners Abroad, um, the British Legion, family, friends for helping me financially survive there because who was going to pay for my hostel? Yes, okay, it was only £30 a week but when you're not earning, my family's then having to subsidise to keep a roof over my head. For how long? We didn't know. So we went up to Supreme Court we had a lawyer, the Indians had theirs, the Estonians got their lawyer. The Indians are saying one thing, we're saying one thing, and they said another thing. The judge is scratching your head saying, well, I don't know who to believe you. We're going to have to go to trial. And we're just going, oh, no. And apparently, from our legal team, the prosecution team, were nearly doing cartwheels because... Any person who knows, especially Indians, we were told the lower courts, the police run them. It's the higher court that in the Supreme Court that you stand a bit more of a chance. So we're just going day by day, wondering when this trial is going to start. Starts September 2015. And I went down a few times and I had to say to my legal team, I'm not coming down here unless the judge requires me. I'm not, I had I had a partner, I met a girl out there and I'm certainly not travelling nine and a half hours on coach. No, I'll only come down when the judge requires everyone to be there because I was sat, stood in court and we were obviously had one legal team to translate when they were doing the cross-examination of the collector of evidence. But it didn't matter what he said because they're just going to take his original statement. But he'd literally turned around in a court of law and said, well, if I'd saw the ballistics expert for the weapons, I wouldn't have put the charges on the men. So our legal team saying, so you put the charges on the men knowing that the weapons w weren't illegal? Yes. And we're like... What? What? So basically, you've 
being told by the police to put the charges on, to put in prison before you saw the ballistics expert on the weapons. And, the, and when we've heard about what the ballistics experts did with these weapons, they fired one or two rounds and said it was automatic. I was like, eh, what? Well, the weapons weren't automatic. They had parts removed and could not be replaced. And they were designed to fire single shot only, which all weapons in maritime had to be. They had to be a weapon, but not a weapon of war. An automatic weapon is a weapon of war. And all the documentation status and the weapon cannot be put into automatic. It's a dummy switch. And in a court of law, the ballistics expert did that in front of the judge and the judge went, duly noted. And we're like, yes. And it came to a, a recess for Christmas and we had to go back for judgment on the 10th of January 2016. And our, our uh, legal team turned around and said, we're very confident. I said, well, you want to be because the, the, they've got no evidence. They we even had the map out saying, where was the vessel? And they're looking at the map going, uh, I'm thinking... You don't even know where we were, do you? You were tipped off where to send the Coast Guard. The police didn't even know where we were, man. It was absolutely... It, it was like a kangaroo court. It was corruption at the highest level. And then we went on Christmas. I thought... I was in high spirits. Went for a Christmas meal with me ex-partner. Skyped me family on Christmas Day. Tried to enjoy potentially going home in January. Went down and obviously all the media was aware. So all the media was at it, it, me mum's, me uh, sorry, me sister's waiting for me to get in touch or someone to be, the media was bombarding me. I was like, I'm not even in court yet. I was the last to turn up because the media was proper. How nice I said, you're going to have to wait. Went into court. It was a, a long day piss arsing around and then we're all at the back stood at the back and we're down the right hand side we had our legal team the Estonians were their embassy our embassy the prosecution and I was speaking to one of the Estonians and I noticed loads of police guards went down the outside of the courtroom and I said this doesn't look oh, good shit. and then the judge his little uh, assistant stood up and waffled something in Tamil and we're like what 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 and I tell you what I've seen people look frightened I've seen images throughout my life of people being really scared but it comes nothing compared to how our lawyer looked when he had to come and walk over at us to tell us that we weren't going home that in fact we were going to prison for five years I've never seen a man shitting himself. And we're like, come on, what's the matter? And he went, um, gentlemen, you've been uh, sentenced to five years. Obviously, oh my God. the British government, we take local nationals to work for our embassy. So it builds a, a bit of rapport with the local uh, community and relations. And our embassy girls knew exactly what was said. So they literally got up straight on that phone and rang New Delhi and went, they're going to prison. <laughs> and 
we're just stood there and I've gone, how the fuck do I tell my family now? Oh my God. And because of the time difference, um, your sister and all that was getting, going over to my mum's and the media was bustling around. So I literally rung my sister, I went, Lisa, get the mums now. She went, what do you mean? I went, it's not good news, get the mums now. I'll call you back, I'm ringing dad. I rung me dad and I said, dad, my dad's not the one that shows emotions. The only time I've really seen his emotions is when I was telling them I was going to Afghanistan. Um, as you can imagine, British soldiers were dying. And obviously, you know, I was a soldier going to Afghanistan. My parents weren't going to stop me doing the job I loved, but they were under no illusions that I might not come home or if I did come home in a box. So that's the only time I've seen his emotions and I now have to tell him I'm going to prison for five years. And he went, but the weapons are legal. I went, Dad, I know, but I'm going to prison for five years. I've got to go. Then I rung my sister back and my sister's, we're class errors and we're aunties. She's my mum's really good friend. So you got me mum who's out of hospital now. Couple, you know, it's been a couple of years or such, and she's still trying to come to terms that her brain starts trying to. It's got to rebuild itself and learn all how to use a spoon and you know the things we learn as a kid. She's having to do that again and trying to explain things to her. It's quite difficult, and still is to this day. Even though she's came on leaps and bounds, she'll never be the same. And I've then got to make this bloody phone call, and I, it haunts me. You know, I remember in every detail, and I'm I pick the phone up. I say, Lisa, she says, I'm putting you on the loudspeaker. I say. Right, I'm not coming home. I've been sentenced to five years and my mum just, I've, it sounded like a wounded animal wailing down the phone. And I, I was battling that red mist. I wanted, to, I wanted to just go to that judge and strangle him. I was just, what on earth am I? I'm, I'm, I've just done like nearly two years already and now they're wanting five more years off us for what and I'm here I'm, I'm I was just distraught like we had our, my, my local media for me and the other guys outside the court with their Indian media we had our embassy and I had to ring my partner and say look Mona Lisa uh, can you do us a favour um, it's not good. I'm going to prison for five years. So she started getting upset. And I was like, can you do me one big favour, please? Can you pack me belongings and take it to the embassy? Um, I'm going to prison for five years. It's been lovely knowing you. But please get on with your life and forget about me. I hold this woman in high regards. She'll always have a place in my heart because... She did. She not only went to the hotel and packed my belongings, she took all my belongings to hers. The next day, when we 
did another trip up to Chennai. She was at that prison trying to get in to see me. She was ringing the embassy, asking to allow her in. However, she is Assamese, so she looks more of a, a Chinese descendant kind of person. And she was coming into prison to see a white Englishman. The Indians didn't take lightly to that, so she was refused entry. So she couldn't come in to see me till March, my birthday, when my sister came out to visit me. So we've all been told this dreadful news and were bustled out of the prison onto the buses and the media were there and our media were trying to get in and a few of the guys mentioned a few things and I was, you know, the person that I said and I was pleading to the then Prime Minister David Cameron, get us home now. This is injustice. Get us home now. I beg you. We got on that bus and that was us. Because of the time, they were thinking whether to take with the Palamcote for the night and then up to Chennai the next day, but they just went, no, just get them straight up to Chennai. So on the go, the merry-go-round. And same again, weapons all over, but this time we, pardon me French again, but we couldn't give a fuck. We just sat there lifeless at the back of the bus, on the bus, just like that. I was sat at the back with a couple of the British guys and just sat there, just all I could think of was my family and I was thinking I'm going to just strangle this fucker in front of me with his weapon if he doesn't keep, if he keeps it in my face. And they were, were keep telling them to slow down and then we had a tyre blowout. I'm thinking, we're going to fucking die here, man. I'm not even at prison and we, and we skidded off the road and we had to wait till they got another bus to replace and, I, and the in, Indians, because we weren't handcuffed, the Indians were getting proper edgy and they were like, holding their weapons. I'm thinking, someone don't try and kick off because they're probably going to shoot us. But we got back on the bus and we got there in the mo- early morning and the then, at the time, the jailer, who then be, she become superintendent, she welcomed her into our new home, Central Prison 2, uh, Central Prison 1 in Chennai, the convicted prison, which was slightly better, but still in humane conditions. Um, luckily, we didn't have to walk a mile and a half. We just we were the first compound on the left, and but this time we came into prison during the day, so we could kind of see what was happening, and we had a full day to, you know, find out what we've got available because the in any given situation, and that's why I'm very grateful that the situation that. I faced that had military background because in the military, when the shit hits the fan, you've got to think fast. You've got to think how to, you know, deal with the situation in hand, you assess situations. And the best thing, you hear all these survival people with advice and the first advice is to, while you're still fit and healthy and you're still mentally uh, healthy as well, is to build shelter or find suitable things for you to use to your advantage, get a routine built. And that's what we did. And, you know, just even walking into the cell, just going, right, I'm going to plonk me sheets here. This is where my bed space is going to be. And then finding, you know, your bearings on things. Where do we go to, if we want to get food from the uh, kitchen, where's the jailers? What, you know, and then we were with the local nationals as well. So they were all, popping the heads out, looking at 
because we were the again the first white people in this prison, so we were kind of the new kids on the block. And well, I know this sounds strange to say that, but we felt like zoo animals within a zoo. It was straight a weird feeling, but it was funny because the some of the Nigerians that we used to play uh, football and uh, volleyball with they. They were in there as well, so we had a bit uh, banter with them as well. So it wasn't all doom and gloom. So they came over and say, said hello. Oh, you didn't get home then? Never did you. <laughs> so even in a bad situation, having a military background is is fundamental because we laugh in the face of adversity. Mm-hmm. We laugh things off. Yes, it is a mask to what you really feel, but you've got to show a brave face in these situations. And we did as best as we could, but as time gets on, it gets harder. And we were all thrown in one prison. So you got 23 guys all in one prison. What was your living quarters like? It was just a slate floor, two sheets, a metal mug, spoon, dog bowl. And obviously as time built on, we were able to get little thin mattresses to take off the slate floor, but... So you're all sleeping in the same room? Yeah, so we're all dotted around, and you think 23 people's bad. Some of the Indian cells, there was 40 in theirs, and they were literally like that. So we had to try our best to space out, and we had a toilet in one corner, hole on the floor. So you've got everyone's you know hygiene levels and different backgrounds. You've got three different nationalities in there. What happens if someone snores? They get a fucking trainer launched at them, <laughs> flip flop launched them, and that happened many times because there was some beastly snorers in there. That, and once you find out, someone you just heard, boom, uh, that's someone trainer getting launched at someone <laughs> snoring. So you're just lying there thinking, please don't snore. <laughs> um, Toilet facilities, abysmal, absolutely abysmal. Um, Till we were able to buy toilet roll, yes, I had to use my hand. It was the most <gasps> repulsive thing I've ever done. Is it a hole in the floor? Hole in the floor. Squatting over. Squatting over, pissing, shitting, you name it. Very, very disgusting. And you never think, coming from a, a westernised country, that you'd ever have to endure stuff I'd, even when I was in the army in the desert or in, say, the Bre- Brecon Beatings, I used toilet roll because I took it in me, me backpack. You know, or the, there might have been portaloos cutting about in uh, in Brecon as well, but never to use me hand till I was able, you know. Needs must, unfortunately. How do the Indian prisoners do it? Do they have a different method than the West? They use the hand. They use the hand. That's and I'm and then, I'm then, left-handed dominated. So I remember being in the shop and I was wanting me change and I was holding my left hand out and some Indian woman goes, "Use your right hand." As soon as I you put my right hand out, money straight in because left hand to wipe their ass, right hand to eat and shake hands. Then you say water was very scarce, so washing your hand after doing that would be tricky. Well, there's little taps and little jug things you can fl- dot it around. and So I'm washing me shit off my hand with water, so it wasn't really clean, you know. 
till we're able to buy toiletries like soap from the prison shop and then get the the embassy when they came in they brought us some creature comforts you know they said look do you what do you want anything so we were saying right like i say this is our home the cell so we want to make it look clean and we don't live in shit so we'll buy asking the embassy to you know you know can you buy with some towels you know, maybe a pair of shorts or because we're in T-shirt and trousers or whatever civilian clothes we were wearing at the time when we got convicted. So they brought in the odd T-shirt and shorts and towel and toiletries and, and stuff and biscuits and stuff like that. And you just got to build yourself into a routine. And for the first few weeks, months, it is doom and gloom and then the mail started f sifting through and I went a full month without receiving and I, I just put myself in the corner and seeing people with a little bit of a smile and and one of the guys came over and says, what's the matter? I said, my fucking family's forgot about us. My family's forgot about us. But me, my letters were getting delayed. <laughs> and I was, I was distraught. Didn't even have no contact. The only contact I was getting was via the embassy and they were sometimes once a month, every fortnight for, you know. Um, and then obviously the mail started to uh, sift through and people started receiving uh, parcels with little creature comforts in, maybe books. We had an extent uh, variety of books. We, we had over 200 books at one point. Well, and some even guys read them more than once because... Mm -hmm. We had time on my hand. We had all the Game of Thrones books, and I asked one of the guys, because um, I knew it was doing a TV series, um, I said, is it worth me reading the books or watching the film? He says, Nick, you'll never be able to read them books. I went, good, because I can't read a normal book, so I was reading basic books. <laughs> <laughs> the cat and the dog went to town, stuff like that. Um, and then I kind of extend, get better with me reading and all that. Um but you had to do stuff to keep your mind sane, doing dot to dot, extreme dot to dot, and you're thinking, where the fuck's that number? And you're like that, scratching, you know, you're losing your temper. And reading books, when you got letters, responding to letters, go for a walk around the compound. Um, quite a lot of the guys were into fitness. So we started building a home gym. We ripped flagstones out the ground and found a sharp tool um, and started chipping away so we could snap a branch and put it through. Like I say, I, I got a, eventually a spy pen and we, I took pictures of our Flintstone gym and if anyone wants to check them out, look on my social media. They are legitimate. What social media is that? I've got me pictures on me Facebook, me Instagram and Twitter. So just go on my profile and search for me pictures. And you'll see that, yes, okay, some of the pictures do show a date, but my sister wasn't going to faff on with dates. She just wanted to charge it, get in a parcel and hope that there's still some charge because some of the parcels and letters could take less than a week. Some parcels and letters could take after a month. So when I'm sometimes reading a letter, I'm thinking, hang on a minute, you've sent us another letter. What letter? So this letter came in six days. The letter previously... I had to wait nearly four weeks 
so I couldn't respond to this letter till I knew what she said in this letter. So it was hit and miss at time with the mail um, and parcels. Parcels, you knew the rats were getting in them. Some of the boxes were chewed. And you and I look. I opened my box and we dice to send us uh, bodybuilding magazines and Harry Bow and the Harry Bow was open, but the box was still taped and there was no rat holes. And I'm thinking customs have been at a greedy <laughs> bastards. But obviously the families, especially my sister, were doing their best, raising at government level, doing doing everything, media, showing the world as best as they could the injustice. This shouldn't be happening between the United Kingdom and India to, as David Cameron worded, a blossoming relationship. Well, it wasn't blossoming involving us. We were putting their prison with foisted charges upon us with absolutely no evidence against us. I can't say that that being a very blossoming relationship. So, you know, political, you know, pawns in a horrible game. And we were being punished for a crime we haven't committed. And we're just there to do our job. And we have been on vessels where I'm protecting Indian uh, personnel. I'm hardly going to be attacking them like the, their media was portraying us as. But as time gets on in prison, you get comfortable, but you're never comfortable because this isn't your home. You ac- you've got to accept where you are. You get into a routine. Yeah. Um, we all started having little disagreements. I was going to ask, did, the t- did you guys start to crack up and fall out? I'm not going to lie. There was guys who had disagreements with one another. That's going to happen. And I maintain this to this day. You could have put two of Lifelong's best friends in that position. They would probably hate each other now. You're on top of each other. You're living with each other. Eating, farting, sleeping, you name it. Different hygiene levels, temperaments. We're all hurting. We're all missing family. People are getting divorced. People are selling cars. We're not having an income. Families are suffering. We're suffering. Course is going to be tension. Then, right, we can't live here. Prison, prison, give one of our cell. So in the same compound, another cell was occupied by us, and another cell underneath the original cell was occupied by us as well. So in twenty three guys, we were split into three cells. Did so you have more space then? We had more space, and it became a lot easier. We all still communicated and talked with you, but. It felt better that way. But when you're on top of each other, you're going to get tensions. It's like animals in a cage. Yeah. With the t- just too many people in there, isn't it? Yeah, and that's exactly yeah, what it was. Yeah. It was like... Was there any fisticuffs between the 23? Oh, yeah. One of the Russians, Harry, got it. He got a half, he got a half bottle of vodka sent in, hidden in his socks. <laughs> and he just and it was his birthday and he just necked it. And he just... Started where like they they're the cell and uh, above were, and we just heard some massive thud, and we couldn't find out till the next day what he just necked this bottle of vodka, and we you know what because he was a Estonian Russian kind of guy, but you know what the Russians are like on vodka, it's like rocket fuel to them, and or well, it's like water to them, but they drink it, you know, extensively, and 
they're just lunatics. And they started scrapping on and he just got slammed on the floor and he just passed out, apparently. <laughs> you know, there were there was um, a ho- hospital scuffle and I will put my hand up on it. It was my fault. What happened? Um, the, the doc, the prison doctor was a bit of a bell end, to be honest. And he was all shouting and I'm saying, who the hell do you think you're talking to? I'm coming here asking, I need medical. I'm, I've got aches, pains. I, I don't feel well. I, I, I need to go to a hospital or, or I need to go for a dental checkup. Cause you know, when you're not malnutrition, your teeth start to decay and well, you know, yeah, you're, you're brushing your teeth, but you know, it's not. You're not really living healthy as such. And he just started was being a dick. And I and I I'm I'm sorry, like, but you're not gonna talk to me like that. So I kind of stood up and I and I started shouting at him and the prison guard kinda and a few of the people who were living in the hospital uh kicked off and the kind of oh, a little bit of a scuffle started and I I left and I went Excuse me, I went back to our compound next door and a couple of the guys were sat out on the step of us on the cell smoking their biddies and uh, they saw me come like a face of thunder and I, I saw a metal pipe and I grabbed that and I'm go- I was like, I'm going to fucking kill that bastard. Pardon me French again, but, you know, th- this is raw, this is reality. You're not going to say, I'm going to hit the doctor <laughs> over the head. And they went, whoa, whoa, la- whoa. And I went, I threw that and I went, I'm going, I'm just going to strangle them then. And they, they, a couple of the guys came with us, went in the hospital and they said, right, you're not going to do anything. Just go in. We'll be there in case anything, because I told them I got my hand. I said, we'll, we'll be there as a bit of a backup, but let's try and calm things down. And I was, I calmed down a bit. And I went, right, okay, fair enough. And uh, we're walking into the, uh, Hospital and one of the Indians who was a bit of a bit of a worky ticket, he kind of stood up in a threatening manner like he was going to punch one of the guys. And I tell you what, I've never heard a headbutt so clean in my entire life. One of our guys just went bang <laughs> and the Indians went against the wall and just crumbled. And then all hell broke loose, chairs and crutches and tables getting flown about. <laughs> I, I was nearly going to get hit by a chair and one of the prison guard grabbed it off one of the Indians. And then a guy... Swung his crutch. I grabbed the crutch, threw that, grabbed this Indian, threw him off into the tree, and then I turned round because one of our guys grabbed me to try and extract us, and then some Indian just went whack, and I went boom, <laughs> and we were you know got myself out of the uh, hospital, and just all hell just broke loose, and we then had to go in front of the superintendent, and she was a career-hungry kind of woman. But she she, she didn't want us here because she was a trained lawyer as well. And we showed her all the the paperwork with the weapons and she looked at them and she went, why are you in my prison? And we're like, we would like to know that as well. So she was kind of on our side in a way, but this she can't tolerate. If one of us got injured on her watch, it wouldn't look good for her career it wouldn't look good full stop between the UK and Indian relations so she put in a compound lockdown which lasted around three months bloody hell 
So we could not leave that compound. And if we had to leave that compound, I to take a letter or go and see the embassy or go to the kitchen to cook, we had to be escorted by prison guards. Mm. So if there was no prison guards there, we couldn't leave. And that obviously didn't go down well with a couple of guys. I wasn't uh, well liked for a few months. I was like, what? What do you expect? Tensions run high. No, well, it could have happened to anyone. It's obviously different for one of the Estonians or the uh, Russian guys because they could just waffle off in their own lingo and the Indians would just be like, "Is what's what's he saying? Because they can understand English, especially the doctor and what happened, the brawl in the hospital, the, the put in a, you know, lockdown and... And when, obviously, we've had the whole COVID lockdown, yes, it's not nice. I've done worse. But when I'm trying to say to people, because a lot of people were during the lockdown were like, oh, I'm, uh, this is a prison. And I was like, whoa, your home's not a prison. Do not dare think your home's a prison. Your home is safe. You've got everything at your disposal. You don't need to do much. Yes, it's not ideal, but... It's not a prison that we had to endure. Um, and I always maintained that because I knew people were struggling and, yeah, it's it's not great. I'm grateful I, I worked right through so I had some sort of normality. But, like, after the hospital incident, and it it didn't go down with quite a few guys because they, they wanted to go outside into the main hospital, uh, the, the main prison where you could walk around the amphitheatre, uh, which we would then either run round or uh, walk around just for daily fitness in the morning and afternoon because during the day it was uh, too hot. Mind, we would go running around during the hottest part of the day because we're lunatics and the Indians would just be thinking, what on earth is these white people doing? You know, <laughs> what are they doing running around in, in like, midday? 30, 40 degree heat and we're running around like that um, because you just have to try and just get out and do something and try and keep your your mental thoughts at bay because it's so easy to just sit there and think of your family and that's negative. <clears throat> but people will say, well, how's thinking of your family negative? It should be positive, really. Should, But yeah, I had the pictures that I put on my wall that I got printed off and give to me by the embassy of my family. But every time I thought about my family, it was negative because I missed them. And all I wanted to know was how was my mum? How was my family coping, knowing what is happening with me? When am I going to be released? How's thing? And then obviously... I don't know. I don't know if the embassy told them about the hospital. I think they did, and that you can understand worried my family, especially when I was the main culprit, so to speak, involved. Do I regret it? Yes, of course I did, because it didn't make matters easier for it. It made them harder. I take full responsible actions for that. But you got to be on. You got to be under no illusions of what we were feeling in there. Psychological pressure. <clears throat> you know, it, it can make any 
calm person lose their head? Especially when you know you're innocent. It would have been a different scenario if I was guilty of some crime. Because I wouldn't be acting that I'm innocent. Yes, my family would be trying to, because there is prison transfer after a certain length of time. So I, yes, okay, if I was guilty, my family would probably look into that and serve the rest of my sentence back in the UK. But not when you're innocent. No, But time went on. We lodged an appeal as quick as we could. That appeal process finished in November 2016. It took nearly one year for a decision. The judge refused to give a decision. So we had to literally take matters into our, our own hands because unlike what our lawyers could potentially do in this country, not that whatever happened in my legal side would ever happen in a UK court of law, that's one thing to discuss another day, um, even though the Indians would say, well, we'll mirror the UK system. Yes, from 100 years ago, not current. And, you know, like... As time goes on, you think, are we going to be doing five years here? We've nearly been in the country four years now. And we're only a year into a five-year sentence. So you do start and feel down and, you know, you're getting family coming to see. My, my sister came to see us in the first the remand prison on my birthday and they made it that would come over on my birthday, so it made my birthday feel a bit better. And <clears throat> I was begging my sister to bring me dad. I needed, I was low. And my sister was like, he's in his 70s, the heat will kill him. You know what he's like, he's not very PC. And I went, because obviously when I was out of prison, because I couldn't ring my sister, uh, ring my mum, because of my mum's health, I had to wait till my sister finished work to Skype and the time. So I was always on the phone to my dad and me and my dad built a closer relationship together and I love him to bits and he's been a massive help um, throughout my life. And I said to my sister, I said, you're going to have to bring him out. I need that extra boost of morale. And it was coming up to my birthday it was the 27th of February. I don't think it was a leap year, 2016. I can't remember. Oh, sorry, 2017. So we did another Christmas and New Year. Horrible. You know, that's the time where families come together and we're sat in a... My family didn't celebrate Christmas as the deed, but they didn't. You know, getting, having my presents from the first Christmas just sat there and they just were building, building and just watching them and they couldn't really enjoy it. I suppose I had something good to look forward to, to open. <laughs> oh. um, but it's not the point. You know, I would rather have been home with my family than stuck in a prison. But we're lodged, well, like I say, my family came over. I was training in the the gym, or should I say outside in the gym, under the mango tree, which uh, I'll get a, a nice little story about the mango tree. Um, 
And I was training, and the guy who was like the, the runner for the jailer, one of the prisoners came up, he went, Mr. Nick, Mr. Nick. I was like, what? You have parcel, big parcel. I went, I'll get it at four o'clock. Tell Posty I'll get it. Go, no, 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 no. You have to sign it. I was like, oh man, who sent us a parcel? Because they used to, because we had a prison account with money and these delivery, even though my sister, it's cost like my sister 40 quid. The nanny, they charged me 40 quid to get me parcel one time. I said to my sister, do not ever send a parcel where I have to sign for it because they're skin flinting me money here. Robbing us. And I couldn't do nothing about it. Um, so I'm, I, I, I was like, angry, vest on. I thought, I'm not putting my shirt on. Get, I can't be asked for that. I'm just going to get me a uh, parcel. So I'm marching down, angry. And one of the Brit guys was getting getting a parcel. Cause, so there was actually parcels, but he was having five crack with me uh, sister and dad. And he came out in, to see if I was coming down. He was like, massive. Yeah, parcels, massive. And I was like, could I not get it at four o'clock? Well, Posty says, he's, he's, he's got to do it now. I was like, Arr. so I walked in and I walked into the jailer's office. The jailer sat at his desk. There's absolutely no parcels there. I turned to the par jailer. I went, jailer, where's my parcel? And my sister literally jumps out of behind the table and I just freeze. I just freeze and I... You know, she came over and started giving us a hug. The jailer started crying. My sister was crying. I was more shocked. And because they don't really like you cuddling females, especially when in a prison, so it was quite difficult when my ex used to come. You know, I was always trying to cop a feel when they, they weren't looking, you know what I mean? As you do. Um, and I was getting a tap on the shoulder, and I, I was like, get away, man. I think it was an Indian guard. And literally grabbed us and spun us round, and it was me dad. Oh. And I was just broke down. Oh. He was hiding behind the door. <laughs> so good job the door wasn't, I was crushed. <laughs> and I just, honestly, I, I broke down. But I was, my morale just went through the roof. And because they landed early, the embassy says, we'll get you in the day. So they got in. So we had like four visits. And the the prison, I, I do thank them. That they were very kind. They gave her a three-hour visit every day. And obviously my sister brought this massive cake in on my birthday the next day, and it was laced with alcohol. And you can imagine we've not had any kind of... So we're, we're, obviously they, they they wouldn't touch it because, oh, no, no, it's your prison. So I, obviously I shared it with all of our guys. Because it was chocolate, it was so rich because they were out, so they were dashing to the toilet, squirting <laughs> alcohol, and it was laced with alcohol as well. So, oh. so you're kind of getting a little bit tipsy, but obviously, going to the toilet as well because oh. it was too rich, but it was worth it. And obviously, they would bring they brought a suitcase full of loads of goodies for us, books, you know, and then obviously, the other every time there was a visit, uh the family member would inform the other families, do you have any letters? Email them, I'll print them off. And we used to t do that. So my sister would do that with all the other families. So so they wouldn't feel le left out. Because I, I, I know what it's like. Visit Envy. Yeah. 
a lot of guys never got visits because they couldn't, they couldn't afford it. It was so expensive. And especially when my sister had to take time off work to look after my mum's health, I wasn't earning. And, you know, amazing people going to my sister, go and see your brother now. There's £500. Another person, there's five. Get yourself to see him now. And I thank those people from the bottom of my heart because to go so long without seeing your family, it's 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 very horrible and daunting. And yes, I only saw my sister three times when I was in prison on my birthday every March and my dad once. And then obviously when I got released, my sister then came out to see us and then she flew back before me. But... To have me dad come out to see me, it lifted my morale tenfold. And where the prison was and where the the, the flight path was, you could hear the planes fly. But and so when it was their last final visit, and I'm seeing them leave, and I'm stood there thinking, when am I going to see you again? I'm still serving me five years here, and we're still waiting on nearly a year for a decision. Are they going to make if they can wait nearly a year to make a decision? Who says they can't make, wait any longer? So when the plane flies across over Chennai, because obviously I asked my sister what time you're flying, so I, there was a plane kind of roughly after that, and I heard a plane and I just broke down. The tears just came down. Yeah. And I don't care how tough you are. British prisons are like holiday camps. You got everything, phone calls, visits. When you're five thousand miles away in an Indian shithole prison, did I cry every night? I won't say every night, but majority. I missed my family tenfold, but I had to go beyond the mental boundaries to fight for that next day to keep myself sane, to keep going, to keep fighting, because. I made a promise to not just my family, but to myself. I will never let them beat me. They can beat me to a pulp if need be. They can take away my freedom. But they'll never take my spirit. And my friend said, they didn't take a sense of humour either. I went, <laughs> no, that's something they'll never be able to take away. But I walked out that prison with my hair long and my head held high, pride intact. I said... You didn't beat me. I beat you. It just took four years. Before we get to your release, what's the story of the mango tree? We used to make wine. I had a couple of guys that I befriended who worked in the gym and they used to send um, protein powder out to us. So we used my empty protein tubs and made <laughs> fermented hooch. Mango hooch. And it was up. Absolutely rocket fuel. And it <laughs> fermented very quicker than it would normally do with the heat. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to say a, a, a two kilogram tube, you're getting four, four nearly five litres. You just put it up against the wall and it bakes it. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, we hid it in case because there was used to be the plain clove guys going around to try and catch mm. pr uh, prisoners on mobile phones. And I never used a phone. Um, till it got to the point where, you know what, I'm not bothered anymore. I don't care what you you say. 
when you're in them situations, if you've got valuable information from the lawyer and you want to tell your family or you just want to hear your sister's voice, I couldn't dare speak to my dad or my sister. I think my sister would have told my dad, but because um, we've got an, an Indian phone uh, hidden and brought in. I don't know how, how it got in, but I just used my ex to top it up. Um, for when I was using it. So any valuable information, I would be ringing my sister straight away. This is happening, blah, 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 this. Or just to let you know I'm I'm all right, you know. Yes, it's mum's birthday. I, I'm going to... How's mum? Is she all right? And just... You're going to... You, you, you know, you're going to have to eventually, especially in them situations... I know it's not nice if you do get caught that add six months on your sentence. There was local prison phones, so I did. I had a card which you get 10 minutes every 10 days. So I used to ring me, me ex-partner and speak to her, say how she was coping. Like I say, she'll always remain to have a part of my heart because she stuck by me. Every day, and she came to see me before she uh, had to move for work from Chennai to Bangalore, so it wasn't easy for her. But she took some time off to come and visit me when my sister came over and my dad came over. Uh, so she obviously finally got to meet me, me dad and my sister in person, and such a great help she was, and coming to visit me on her own back bringing letters for the other guys and creature comforts, you know, I, I hold a high regard and I hope she, you know, I do send your text messages to say, I hope she's okay, you know, that. And it's a shame, obviously, we couldn't keep the relationship going, but it, long distance, it's difficult. 5,000 miles, you know, it's it's difficult, you know. Um, so... We had to nip it in the bud, but you know everything that's happening over in India at the minute. I, I do have concerns, and I hope her and her family's doing okay. And from our recent message, they're doing okay as well. So, so how did you get released? Um, the captain of the vessel was a bit of a a worky ticket, and he and it's funny because he spent eighteen months at the hands of his captors because one of his vessels got hijacked and he said the Somali pirates treat me better than the Indian authorities <laughs> and he had and he was there for 18 months and I'm thinking and you've gone back to work doing work on the ships in the high risk area are you mental <laughs> times are hard especially in Ukraine because obviously what was going on there Russia were hit bombing them and attacking them and all that at the time. Um, he got bone cancer. And he used to go, oh, I'm dying. I'm, oh, he was a bit of a hypochondriac and the Indians were just thinking, what's up with him? He's, oh, he's an idiot, man, just ignore him. He actually got bone cancer and he started to deteriorate. He was walking around grey, lifeless, yellow eyes, rag bones and... We'll put a court case in because our case is at the high court, so he had to go all the way through. So we'll put like a, a red herring in to try and 
see if we can get it higher than the high court so, can, so we can say, what's going on here? You're entertaining him, but you're not going to entertain him. What's some? He's as a health issue. So we we got him. We got him. Uh, his court case to get him released to die in a private hospital, so his family can come from a U, from the Ukraine to see him. Fortunately, and I, yes, he was an idiot. He could have uh, prevented a lot of things if he spoke to the police at the beginning, but he didn't. He hid himself and shouted at them. And made matters worse. But I'm not going to wish death upon him, regardless of whether he, if he did things different, I do believe it wouldn't have made a blind difference. We were going to prison regardless. But at the time, you do think, shoulda, woulda, coulda. What if, blah, blah. And his treatment started to work, but he wasn't aware of it. So his court case is going up through to Korean High Court and it went up to Supreme Court and while we're using the government the embassy to speak with the Chief Minister of Chennai to try and hustle our case to get it in you know back in court and get the judge to make a decision his court case was going to Supreme Court And the grandest judge of all of India heard his case. Mr. Supreme Court of India. And he didn't care about his health. He just went, why are you still in our country? Well, our legal team jumped on this. They went, well, Your Honour, if you look at High Court, they're still waiting on a decision. And it's been nearly one year. And he's looked at it and he's gone, right, I want a decision in two within two weeks. And and we got this information and we're like, it's on like Donkey Kong. Something is happening. It's been ordered. And you, you gotta understand where quite a lot of guys' mindset was. We've had so many ups and downs. Any glimmer of hope, a lot of guys used to think, I'm not gonna believe it. I'm not going to believe it. We got told we got bailed by uh, the j- jailer one day and we all got we kicked down to the the uh, main gate and the superintendent goes, what are you doing? Well, he says we got bailed. No, he just haven't. Get back. <laughs> so we didn't believe nothing till it was literally in black and white or action speak louder than words. So, uh, you know, a few guys were quite apprehensive. I was trying my best to just remain positive. I'm I'm a realist. So, yes, I may try and mask me true feelings. I am fully aware, but I try to spread more positivity because negativity is easy and it spreads like wildfire. And the last thing you really want is a bunch of 23 men doom, gloom, miserable. Because the days will feel like weeks, the weeks will feel like months, and so on and so on. And it felt like that anyways. So when we get this little glimmer of hope, we think maybe something could be happening here. One week goes by. It's on. It's on. 27th of November 2017, Judgment Day, as we called it. So on the Sunday evening, 
the court cases on Monday, none of them were slept. You can't. You're full of anticipation. What a radio. And, and we're listening on Chennai FM. I've said I've mentioned this a few times, and I know to a lot of people it sounds cheesy as hell. And it, when I was driving down here, I came on my iPod and I had to listen to it because I like the song anyways, but it's so meaningful now. And the so, it was playing rock ballads and the song The Final Countdown came on by Europe <laughs> in the prison cell. And I stood up, I stood up in the prison cell. I said, it's over the moral, it's over. And a few of the guys were like, oh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. And I was like, it's, it's over, it's over. That's how the boost of confidence I felt in the positivity was flowing. I said, even if they say no, it's going to Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court's told the High Court, give a decision. So either way, it's a win-win. Yes, okay, if the, the, the fob it off and it goes up to Supreme Court, we might probably not, not get home for Christmas. But at least we're not going to be doing five years. Surely. And no one slept on the, the day of the races. People were like headless chickens. People were restless. And have you heard anything? How you heard anything? We're going to ring around lunchtime. Let, you know. So the guys rang around lunchtime, uh, lunchtime find out when our case is going to be heard. She went, our, uh, our lawyer. Uh, she went, well, there's about 40. Guess what? Yours the last. I went, oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> no hope there then. So there was about 40 cases and we were the last one getting hurted around tea time between four and five. And uh, that's the time we normally go and cook. So we kind of, the guys went early to cook the food to bring back so they could go down and ring the lawyer via the jailers. Because um, normally we'll just all use the prison phone, but this had to be done via the jailer because of the severity of it. And I was training outside in the Flintstone gym and uh, I was in the zone and one of the guys came to the barred windows and when you sound so excited but you want to cry at the same time, it gets me attention. Dunny, dunny, dunny. I was like, what man, what man? Gans, case acquitted. It's over. Yes. And I was just, see, I told you. And honestly, inside, I was buzzing me tits off. I was buzzing and I, I went, right, let's finish my workout. And I, 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 I was like, <laughs> I can't. My head's just gone into overdrive. And you can go on Google and you can watch the video of when my family get given the good news. It came via text message because it was so easier for the the UK lawyer via the Indian lawyer to text all 23 families instead of ringing them or sending them. And he just decided to text it because not everyone checks their emails straight away, but you're going to text your phone, especially when all the families know what day it is. And if you want to see what a good moment is, watch that video. Use your common sense and just type Nick Dunn's family getting uh, good news or something like that. But it's then you see how it really means to a family being told the good news. And I felt like I've just been 
kicked in the stomach. I, I'm like that. Is this real? Is is this the end of the nightmare? I'm I'm like, what? So I kind of composed myself. Everyone's running around like headless chickens, buzzing, and you know. And I thought, oh, how am I going to get to sleep? <laughs> None of us slept that night. So there's two nights we've not slept. So light as a going off, smoking biddies making brews in my flask because we normally have a couple of flasks and f- when we go fill them up with hot water. Um, so we got unlocked around six o'clock. Avani kicked the guard out the way. I said, get out my way. I want a train to tire myself out. So I was in, I was in the compound training and then I'd walk around between sets and then, uh, Early morning, one of the guys got. Uh, we had a couple of guys who would what wouldn't delegate them to be the bosses, but he was the boss on the ship. He was the TDO, and obviously, in the eyes of the prison, he was our boss. So they were always asking for him, and he was like, "Hey, it's every man for sale, but you know what not." Um, he got summoned by the superintendent. So I collared him on his way out. I said, where are you off to? He goes, oh, superintendent's collared us. I was like, all right, okay. Not thinking anything, just cracking on and outside in the gym, walking around, and I saw him come in. I said, what's the crack? What's the crack? He says, get your shit together. The embassy's coming at 11 o'clock. Wow. And honestly, I stopped in my tracks and I felt someone... I know this sounds weird, but it's, it felt like someone had just kneecapped us but without me losing my kneecaps. <laughs> I buckled, my knees buckled. I, was, I felt sick. It's like, you're taking the piss. goes, nah, the embassy's coming at 11 o'clock. Get your shit together. Yes. And I walked into the, into the cell once I went round and picked me, me towel up in water bottle the guys were just running around like headless chickens. And obviously the Indians were looking, they were thinking, what are they going to leave? What gifts are they going to yeah. leave? I was like, yeah, take it out. <laughs> a little bag that I kept when my sister came out, I just put a few bits and bobs and all that. And uh, we all went down there and seeing the high commissioner, the deputy high commissioner, the two embassy girls, obviously the Estonian had their... Um, embassy there the Ukrainians didn't have because obviously they were more pressing matters were dealing with Russia than three of their guys and to see them there and have them speak to her I knew it was over and the cars were waiting literally outside we got got out eventually it was a long process go, you know still ink old school non, none of this technology you know, in an Indian prison, like you would see in our prison, they didn't even know how to use the X-ray machine properly, man. They just went, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Could have smuggled a weapon in, just took it apart. They wouldn't even know what to look for, man. Absolutely brainless. But finally, four years, the nightmare's over. And going, getting sent to the hotel... Uh, which was paid for the, by the mission to seafarers uh, and my flight, which 
was uh, I flew back to the UK via Emirates and I'll thank, I'll thank the mission to Seafarers throughout what the support they've done for me and my family and in Emirates, um, making sure my flight was uh, amazing and assigning the trolley dolly just for me. <laughs> that was fantastic. But getting out of that prison, I got to the embassy and obviously it would have came on my sister's phone as a blocked number. I rung, and the, I don't know if there was like a, a gap or my sister was just wondering, I don't recognise this voice. I went, it's me. And she went, what do you mean it's me? Who's me? I went, it's Nick. And she was screaming down the phone. She went, I'm on the way to the airport. Oh. I'm coming to get you. Oh. So literally at that time of me ringing my sister, my dad was taking her to Newcastle Airport. Oh. And she flew over with uh, the media um and stayed at the same hotel for me and my previous partner, she came down from Bangalore, spent six days with us because that's how long we're out of prison before we flew home. Six days. Uh, guys were getting frustrated. Totally understand. I, and I was just saying, look, man, it's their last straw of mucking we're about. Yeah. When we were dealing with uh, our exit permit at the visa department, they did half of the guys and then they sat there and they go, oh, computer's broken. I was like, oh, okay. So you've just done 14 guys, but you can't do the rest because of computer problem. And they're like, yeah, computer problem. I was like, you couldn't lie and fucking straight in bed, you lot, could you? And they can't say no either. Ask an Indian to say no. They'll never say no. They'll just... But that's their culture. You know, that's their culture. And we had to deal with it every day. And our culture to their culture is worlds apart. Um, it is what it is. You know, it's four years of my life that I'm never going to get back. The the woman of in charge of the investigation, I met her personally in her office showing the letters saying that you're legal hold and we're showing her pictures of my mum in hospital and she couldn't care. Absolutely couldn't care. Not interested. No, you go to a court in the UK, your prosecution team's going to be there, the judge is going to be there. Okay, maybe a little bit late or whatnot, but they'll be there. In India, they weren't turning up. And then they'll just go, two weeks. Come back in two weeks. And one on one occasion, the judge didn't turn up. And he, he he booked our court date on the date he was off. And there was no other judge to take it. So we we go down there, a 14-hour bus journey, to then being told oh, he's not there. Like, absolutely ridiculous. Was the scenery nice on the journey? No, shit. No. Absolute shithole. <laughs> Absolute. What was it like getting at the UK airport? Oh, like I'd not slept for nearly a week because I was living on adrenaline and living on a, a small thin mattress on the floor to living in a, a plush bed like the Radisson Blue. I could, yes, any normal person would have just gone, oh, this is me. And I couldn't get comfortable. I don't know if it was because my ex snoring next to us. No, she didn't, but... 
I couldn't get comfortable, you know, and um, obviously uh, the whole of Facebook, social media went wild and all support was fantastic. And it come to the day of me flying home, my sister had to leave early because she had to go home for my mum because they obviously get them ready for coming to the airport for my arrival. And my the embassy dropped. Obviously, I had a. I went to the airport with my ex, to, so she could fly back to uh, Bangalore, and she was distraught. Bless her. Um, the embassy took her to the airport of Chennai, and a homeless guy got absolutely twatted by a bus. And the embassy girls were like, "Oh no!" And I was just laughing in the back, going, "Yes, get in." <laughs> I'm never going to say stuff like that ever again. But that's just what happens. They're just they're absolute lunatics on the road. They do not care. They just drive and knock people over. <sighs> Unbelievable. The bus drivers, and then he would kick off saying, well, what are you walking in front of me bus for? And I'm thinking, can you not see him? <laughs> he's just walked up. You were stationary. And then he, as soon as he walked, he just put his foot down and just hit him. All over the floor like that. I was thinking, get me out of this country now. <laughs> and then we flew from Chennai to Dubai. I w- I chose a bit a different air uh, port time, so I would only stay in Dubai two hours. But then the embassy says, you can't get that flight. You all have to leave now tonight. So in a way, we were politely get out of our country now we don't want to see us ever again so I had to spend six hours from me time in Dubai and then endure a seven hour flight and I haven't slept in a week so anyone who's been in Dubai you can get an internet signal anywhere not me it's like the whole world had said do not let Nick Dunn have internet on his phone so I couldn't connect to anyone. I couldn't let my family know where I was. I was just sat in this airport on my own because the other guys had to go to different parts of the airport for different UK uh, flights. And I just had to... Obviously, I asked, can I get some money to use in Dubai? So I got it changed by uh, the airport. And I was just trying to just live off caffeine. Because obviously Dubai is not cheap. I think it was about five hour a cup of coffee or something. I like that. I was like that. In a country where water is more expensive than fuel. It's madness. And I finally got on the plane and I was exhausted. And I was like, and I can't really sleep on planes after watch films. So I was like watching films and I always had the guy, the, the girl that from Emirates it was quite funny because other people were trying to collar her and she just blanked them because she was... And and I, I thank Emirates for doing this. Um, Really, really thank them because they didn't have to do that, but they did. They made my uh, flight very comfortable. I wasn't in first class, but I had first class treatment, but they made it low key, if you know what I mean. Um, There was a few people on that plane who recognised us, mm-hmm. Probably because it wasn't hard. I looked like a bag of shit with long hair and I was 
in a tin can going, uh. so a few people clocked us and our <laughs> thumbs up and mouth and welcome home. And, and you mind, I've spent four years in 30 to 40 odd degree heat for four years and I'm coming home to crisp December minus 11,000 degrees. I was absolutely freezing. We apparently, well, it's not apparently, this happened. When I was coming home, all people, friends and family were at the airport, international arrival gate. The media, which surprised me, sister, because she only thought, oh, maybe the one of the local papers and the local TV would be there. But there was Sky News and other media outlets as well. They were all on one side. And like I say, I thank Newcastle Airport for making um, my arrival as swift as possible. Because um, they didn't have to, but they, they made it. Um, they did ask, do you want a, a little separate room? And I went, no. I want to come out properly because I would still have to face the music anyways. So, and I dealt with media out there when I could and my sister dealt with media and so did the other family. So I felt it was, it was fitting um, just to kind of show the, the support from friends and family and show that, you know, the injustice that we had been served. And this is a moment that I've been dreaming for every day for four years and it was all different apart from one thing you know when you're getting close to landing and the captain says can you go back to your seats and fasten your seat belts we're coming to land that was always the same mind damn like that absolutely hanging and when he said that it felt like someone just put a fresh battery in us I'd just gone whoomph because the reality was starting to hit and I was bright as a button. I was like, ah. And I was the last person off the flight because they said, we'll keep you to the end. The captain came out, shook me hand. The girls shook me hand. I unfortunately couldn't get their numbers. <laughs> Had a girlfriend at the time. Obviously, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, a bit of joke aside, the captain came out, um, shook me hand said, welcome home. And I've been smelling piss and shit for four years. And to smell crisp December, clean, crisp UK air nearly gave my nose a heart attack. Wow. I know that sounds mad, but it did. It was unbelievable. The little things we take for granted in our everyday life, I appreciate tenfold. And I stood up the top of them stairs, steps, and I took one breath and I went, I'm home. And when I was walking down, the airport staff were just clapping, saying, oh. welcome home. And I've only tripped up because I was starting to fill up. Yeah. And then, and then the bus was sat there with everyone on the plane thinking, are you going to hurry up? <laughs> <laughs> you bell end. <laughs> I was like that. <laughs> I, got on the, I got on the bus. I went, sorry, sorry. And they went, you deserve it. Welcome home. And I went, look, so, and, we'll go, and we just went, right. <laughs> And parked up. I was like, what's the point? Just let us walk. <laughs> um, and I got picked up by the airport staff. She was great. And it was m unbelievable. We went past the, we went to the carousels and my bag was there. I hadn't even started 
my flight. It's like the baggage handler was instructed to get on that plane and find my bag. Because it was there waiting for us. Absolutely unbelievable. It's a shame they couldn't do that normal. <laughs> you know, when people lose their bags and it ends, it ends up in Milan, going round and round and round <laughs> for eternity. And then took us past uh, immigration and the check-in and all that. And the, she stopped us at the doors and she says, this is a journey only you can do. And she she walked away. And it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And people say, well, how? You should have been smashing through them doors. I went, it wasn't like that. I've been wanting this moment for four years and it was like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Pay Company was a piece of piss to that. And I mean that. Pay Company was a piece of piss to me walking through them doors. And I'm, I'm like composing myself and, I'm, and I was about to take a step forward and then some guy came to the side and opened the doors and I saw all the media down one side, all my friends and family down the other side and I just went, Ugh. I was like, that shit, shit. And then they shut again. I went, right, here we go again. And the same again, another guy came and opened it, but then my dad clocked us because he was in conversation with his sister and he went, he's there, he's there. And then <laughs> it was like two magnets, me and my sister colliding together and she was only a little dinky lass and how I never crushed her, I had n no idea. She <laughs> she hugged me just as much oh. as I hugged her. And like I say, if you've never watched the video of me coming back, please do because then you'll understand what it means to a family to finally have justice. can't describe how I feel. I'm on cloud nine, as I said, <laughs> and it's all down to my sister. She's made this possible. I was quite calm, actually. I wasn't anticipating me being so calm. It wasn't until I got to the door there that's when I kind of just hit it, you know, and seen my mum. Well, I just want to just really relax with my family, you know, and I think... Uh, a lovely hot bubble bath on the cards for tonight. <laughs> you know, it's something simple that we all take for granted and I'll never take that for granted ever again. It was amazing. The media were very good. They, they didn't bombard. They, they were very patient. Once I did all the cuddles, family and friends, and you can see that on the the, the clip of me coming home as well. And... To see me mum for the first time, mine she was in a wheelchair, broke me. Happy moment, but it broke me. And even so, it's 2021 now, but the pain's still there. It still feels like yesterday, you know, and 
it's one of those moments in my life that I will cherish for the rest of eternity because it's a happy moment from a horrible situation. And I, I, there, there is a saying, but it's worded differently. You know, I say in every negative, there's a positive. You might not think of it at first, but I've gone through a negative part of my life. But it had a good ending. And that's the main thing, because that good ending outweighs all the bad and the negative. Yes, I, I look back, I reflect now. It's changed me. I'm still the Nick Dunn that my family and friends know. Um, there is a few cracks that people who are well aware and I'm doing my best. But, you know, like, having to deal with the situation that I went through and all the other guys, we, we went through heartache and pain. I can only talk about my story. I saw pain and suffering in others, but that's their story. That's for them to share with their friends and family and whoever is interested to hear their story. Um, but to come home after four years to see my family is absolutely tremendous. And I look back, do I feel angry? Yeah, of course I feel angry because it shouldn't have happened. Am I going to let it lie? I'm getting on with my life. What's done is done. Let's take... Take that and get the positives from it. And that's what I'm trying to do with, obviously, I've wrote a book. I'm doing podcasts. I'm sharing my experience because it's an experience and a story that not many people can tell. And it should never, ever happen ever again. It shouldn't have never happened in the beginning. But I hope it never happens ever again to anyone else because... If it does, then they've not learned a lesson to just, you know, not go down the whole corruption side and stop thinking with that and actually think that. And unfortunately, that's what they did. They fought with the heart and not the head. And when they appealed on day 88, that became personal to me, especially when I've met the woman in charge of the investigation. It became personal. Didn't just become a normal court case, it became personal to me because she could have just walked away and not appealed and nothing would have been said. We would have jumped on an airplane and gone home and I would probably may have continued that line of work or gone into land-based close protection work. But it didn't. It went on and carried on. And I, and I, it's mad because I would have finished my sentence this year, January. Wow. Imagine if I was still in prison last year with whole COVID. I wouldn't have seen the embassy. I would have barely got a letter. Never would have seen my family. I wouldn't be as chirpy as I am today. Mm. I probably would have had to gone to the far depths of hell. And I went to hell. And we all went to hell of some sort to, to begin with. I, but I'm, I don't think, and it's the same, like, 
During the four years, my friends settled down, had family of their own. I'm the last one with uh, Neva, and I don't look and think, well, what if the four years never happened where I was in India? Would I be in the same potential situation? I don't look think like that because it never happened, and all I've got to do is, right, that happened in my life. Let's take something good from it and use it and implement it in my life and then... I can share my experiences and coping mechanisms and how I dealt with it and the mental health aspect of things. And hopefully people can take that in any way, shape or form and implement it in their lives and hopefully they can get positives from it. Man, I'm absolutely gripped. You are brilliant at telling your story. You know, people come on the podcast sometimes and you ask them a question, they give like really little answers, but you just really took us there. All the details, the mango tree, the toilet, the food, the rats, the cats. We were all really there with you. You know, you've sat here now for three hours and um, what a journey, what a hell of a journey. And to see your spirit as well now, to come out so resilient and not you know, resenting just to, just to, I'm a stoic, it's like stoic philosophy. It's happened. I'm moving forward. I've got my book out. And, um, so what is your life like now then? Uh, when I got back to the UK, it was daunting. A bit frightening. Cause I've gone from 2013 to 2017 into 18. Boiling a kettle instead of boiling water over a stove and then pouring it into a flask and trying not to burn your feet. Putting washing in. I remember putting my first load of washing in and then looking at the washing machine going, how on earth do you use this contraption? Because I've been using a bucket. I rung my brother. How the hell do you use the washing machine? Turn it right once, press start. I went, oh. The simple things we take for granted. <laughs> uh, family life, a lot of catch up, obviously friends as well, and walking around like a lost part of a toolbox. Uh, people used to approach us because I was all over the news. When I, the people have been saying us, we knew some was happening because you were just always on the news at one point and it was the lead up to you coming home and people would stop us in the street and I'm very approachable I've got no problems with people coming up as I know people were a bit standoffish uh, at first but they knew it was me because my hair hadn't been cut and I just was like that <laughs> wondering what the hell's going on and I was walking around going <laughs> um and people would ask us how's things and then they would ask the odd questions, oh, what was prison like, blah, blah. And then they would say, oh, glad you're home, son, catch you later. And then you should write a book. You should write a book. And, you know, I was just always, nah. Was, and even a few people that when I was in prison, when they were writing to us saying, are you writing, you should write your memoirs down. I said, they're in my head. Don't you worry about that. And then just getting on with life and my sister won an award 
for all our hard work and fun raising and raising awareness. And shout um, out to your sister. What a hero she is in this story. She didn't realise that I was going to be presenting it. A few people on the on our table <laughs> knew, so I, I was saying to them, "Get your video, get video, get it videoed," and then the guy was introducing. Uh, the award, and he goes, "I can't, I can't do this. There's someone in the audience that has to award this award. Can Nick Dunn stand, come to the front of the stage?" And my sister just burst out crying. My family cr- was crying. My mum, my auntie, her, f- my sister's friends were crying, and I'm suited and booted <laughs> right at the back, having to walk through nearly three hundred people. Mainly women, because it's an award for inspirational women, and um, we had people that were new near the front, and they were video, and literally no one was sat. Everyone was stood up as a, a way of showing respect. And I got up and I introduced the award. I gave a little sp- speech, um, and it was a fantastic achievement for my sister, um, and. Just getting on with daily life, obviously I took a bit of time out to readjust to being back in UK society and it's a hell of a lot quieter than India, that's for sure. Um, And then getting myself back into work, I'm just doing UK security, Not my time abroad, doing hostile stuff's a thing of the past now, even though I've been offered a few jobs in the past since I've been home uh, my heart's not in it anymore and I know the the worst side of things that can happen when doing these jobs um, and the corruption that is behind is not too far from it and I appreciate freedom more than most I can say and family I've always been a family orientated person, but my dad must be sick of me ringing every two minutes, you know. And uh, the, we built up a relationship once my mum kind of got ill, and just fitting back into life. And more people kept on saying, You should write a book, you should write a book. And I just thought to myself, You know what? What have I got to lose? So I sat down with my sister and I said, look, let's get something wrote up and then put my feelers out, see what, you know, interest we can get. And yes, no, oh, mm, uh, mm, all the rigmarole. It's easy. Anyone can write a book. It's getting it published. That's the, the most difficult thing. And eventually I got it published thanks to Mirror Books and... The, my agent, Philip Patterson, done a fantastic job. He's currently doing a fantastic job. Hopefully things go well for that. Uh, and the guy who helped put my memoirs into chapters and had a lot of patience for me, asking the questions to... Because this was my first time I've had to sit down and relive four years again. And I, I thank Howard Linsky for that he's done a fantastic job and 
the book's not just about me blabbing me gums. It's actually got my sister's uh, injection as well. So you're getting like two stories in one and you get to see the, the family aspect of what is happening in the timeline of what is happening with me as well. And it's a fantastic achievement you know, that, you know, I've, I've gotten. I thank everyone's amazing support who's uh, took their time to read it. And I hope people can take something from it and implement it in their lives. And same with me doing podcasts. It's a way of, you know, promotion for me, myself, my book and, and just share uh, an experience because before all this happened, I used to watch like the program, like Prisoners Abroad and stuff like that. And Brits banged up abroad and stuff. So I am living proof of one of those stories. And Do you want to go on that show? I don't think they would let us. They've been in contact with us, but they wouldn't because I'm innocent. Oh, that, that excludes you, does it? Well, once I actually told them, look, I'm actually an innocent, I was, they kind of weren't really interested. I'll, I'll have a word with them. But obviously with everything that's happened, the might change our tune but if you do watch like banged up Brits abroad they're not as innocent as they're making out unfortunately some some are in the wrong you know place at the wrong time but we were 100% innocent and it was down to political porn corruption of the highest level that escalated our case and um I'm, I'm, you know, interested. Everything that's happened, um, I was a bit of a, I couldn't really talk in groups and pretty shy and, you know, found it really difficult. But we're dealing with bits of the media and doing podcasts. It's gave us a bit of confidence to... You're a really good speaker. To really share my experience and a lot of people have said to me nick you you come across very passionate i said because it's a very passionate thing and people can give one word answers or little answers and i have to go and you know into fine detail because if i just give a normal answer to some question that someone may ask they may go But what else? You know, I feel like you're not telling us a, uh, telling us at all. So that's why I just speak from the heart. Obviously, when I, I you know, I've got a, a talk at a college tomorrow, so I've prepared for that because you, four years and a bit of me life story and talking about coming home and what I've just recently gone through, um, mental health as well, trying to cram that into, say, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, it's quite difficult. So I've got to really prepare and cram and take focal points on what my discussion and talk wants to be about. And um, like I say, uh, mental health, um, I've gone through some dark days since I've been home most recently. Where back in March, I felt like enough was enough, and I wanted to take my own life. the The demons, when you're in that situation, you're 
you're fighting, you're surviving. So you're, you're battling. And since I've been home and good times have been happening, I'm, I'm easing back into society, family life. I'm vulnerable without noticing it. And anything can be a trigger, a relationship breakup or some person doing 20 and a 40 in front of you. Any trigger, you know, can happen and it's how you deal with it. And I couldn't deal with it. I, f I fell off the, the planet. I had enough. The demons come from, they came for me. They saw the vulnerability in me and, but something deep inside me said no. I don't know why I didn't go through with it. Maybe it's because I, I kind of let the cat out the bag to my family and they jumped straight on it because my family has been noticing a change in me. I've noticed a change in me. Not everyone is fortunate as me. And other people hide, mask it with a smile. Don't talk about it. Especially men. We're macho. This doesn't happen to us. Blah-de-blah. -blah. It does. Because most people who commit suicide are men. And I felt ashamed. I felt my pride had been dinted and I'm a, a man of pride. And I had to bite the bullet and say enough's enough. I don't want to take my own life. It would, my sister said, if you take your life, you're putting a bullet in mum and dad's head. Because it is selfish, but it's the, it's what happens after that. The trauma. You've, it's like a Western shootout. You're, you're leaving carnage because you're not there to care. And something, I think I was just mentally drained and I just couldn't be bothered to get in my car and go to where I was going to kill myself. Um, I'm glad I didn't do it. And the support, because I, I, I came out on social media as well. At first I was quite sceptical. I didn't want people to think, oh, he's attention-seeking or anything like that. But the response I got from friends people who've supported me throughout the years with being in India just jumped on it and showed their amazing support. And I thank them because they're keeping me here today. My friends, when I'm at work, ringing us, saying, Nick, you've just shit me right up here. Tell me what the fuck's going on. Speak to me. I'm your friend. And I'm just like, I can't do it anymore. And they said, yeah, you can. And my sister keeps re reminding us and saying, you've gone through worse. Keep going, you're a fighter. Look at mam. She fought to stay alive for you. Now you fight for her. And it hits home. And I'm going through therapy. I'm doing talking therapy and it's working. Yes, I, st I, I, I still get a bit emotional. I'm more emotional down as I've getting older because I've gone through a massive trauma, mental, and I didn't see it as a mental trauma till most recently. And you don't see these things will happen in your life. You know, people go on 
and think PTSD just hits you like that. No, it doesn't. It can take months, years. You could be happily married, settled down with kids, and then one day, boom, 20-odd years later, it's hit you. It, the demons will come for you. There is no denying that. It's how you respond. Don't let them beat you. Seek help. Don't be afraid. Don't do what I've done and any little thing and palming off and palm off because it just built up and built up and built up and took me legs away. And I've battled and I've showed the resilience that I do truly have. And I try and I play myself. I always bring myself down. I always, um, I'm always hard on myself. And I need to stop doing that because that's negative. And I want to be positive. A lot of people sometimes say, Nick, you are a bit negative. I'm saying, I'm being realist. I'm being realistic. I'm not trying to sound negative. It may come across that, but I'm showing you there is two sides to every story and there is two sides of a coin. You've got to look at both and assess it and take it, take what you can from them. And I'm dealing with it. The road's going to be long. There is going to be the odd pothole in. There is days where I do feel down in the dumps, but I don't feel suicidal, and that's progress. So any advice I've got to anyone who is suffering, pick up the phone, make the call, because it will be the best thing you've done. Because mental health isn't a joke. It's been played down for so many years, but now enough's enough. Too many people are suffering in silence, and now, raise your voice and say, I need help, because that's what I eventually done. And it is, it's hard, but it's beneficial for not just you, but your family. Because I don't want to die, not yet anyways. I'd rather be old and grey in a care home or something, you know what I mean? But I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good, you know, I'm, I'm rebuilding my life. Even though I've been home since December 2017, I'm still rebuilding my life. I'm owed six-figure sum in wages alone. I'm never going to get. I've not received a penny in compensation. They offered us £10 in the Indian courts. £10. So no, I haven't earned any compensation. So when people start saying, oh, he's... He's just trying to make a bit of money by selling his book. That's because I've got nothing and I've had to rebuild my life. Simple as that. There's the, there's the truth. Take the notice of them. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I just use it as a bit of a reference to say, if, if you're not going to be bothered to know the whole ins and outs, why make a comment on things? You know, and I I don't care about people who try and belittle me or anything like that because I just take a step back and watch people defend me and there's always someone fighting your corner and the wor and obviously most common nowadays is social media hate and my advice again for that is I know it's easier said than done but ignore the comment you, you will know within the first sentence if it's going to be hate ignore that comment delete the comment block the person and if it is personal, they'll keep coming back, but they'll get sick eventually and get the police involved. 100%. And those people are either mentally ill or having a bad day. So exactly. they're irrelevant. 
what a powerful story, man, and such an inspirational way to end it. And I think in Indian yogic philosophy, you know, when you felt like you were going to kill yourself, it's called having a kriya. What that means is you're clearing out the darkness. Mm. So you, you've you've transformed now into this much stronger, inspirational person. I hope I have. It's not going to come back. It won't. It won't come back like that at that intensity. I, I, you said there'll be little bumps, but it won't come back at that intensity. I can see in you, man, the passion, the drive, the inspiration. You've got a brilliant life ahead of you. You know, your sister, what a fucking absolute badass your sister is. She deserves a medal. Do you, do you have the video of the award thing? I, I, I do have It'd it. It'd be great if we could put it on the end of this, just yeah, to show yeah. what a badass your sister is. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the family stories is just so powerful. Your dad, your mom. Um, it's, it's just classic what you've said today in here. You've come in here, gripped the hell out of all of us. It's absolutely classic. I'm sure the people watching this are going to want to check your book out and go on your Facebook and your Instagram and, and watch your photos. So is there anything you'd just like to say to the viewers then as we finish this? Uh, I hope you enjoy a real-life story of the biggest, well, I wouldn't say biggest, but one of the biggest miscarriage of justice in the modern era. And hopefully you can take something from it and implement it in your life. And I know we've been going through a tough time this past year and everyone just be safe, be well. Family is important. It is to me. I know not everyone's got a, a family like mine, but the next time you have that argument with a family member, remember, you may need that certain family member to come to your defence. And if you're not a loving family, then they're not going to be there for, for you. I'm grateful. Because I didn't ask my sister to do this. She'd done this on her own back because she knew the injustice. When I'm on that, when I was on that vessel and my family have seen these online media lies that the India Indian media was spouting, my father asked me one question only. He says, Tell me the truth, are you selling weapons? I went, No, Dad. I protect. I do not sell weapons. He went, right, okay. You've got my full support. That's from my own dad. Check me book out, Surviving Hell. Amazon's the best place. You can read a, a bit of it, so if you're not interested, at least give a bit of a, a bit of a read, and you never know, it, it might uh, drone to you to actually buy it and give it a good read. It's not just me chatting. You get to hear what my sister uh, says about what happens during that time with my family and if you're suffering mental health do the do the right thing pick up a phone call make the call seek help and hopefully we'll get the video to put on the end of this if you want to keep what stay tuned to watch um, the sister and the award absolutely fantastic passion the emotion um time's just gone so fast so so please let us know in the comments what you thought about the video today huge thank you to all the new subscribers subscription logos in the corner of the screen and nick's links and our links are all in the description box like i said he's got facebook instagram and we sure will have the link down for his book there as well so 
Hope you enjoy checking out. All right, give us a hug, man. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Well done. Yes, Brilliant. I don't think it's fitting for me to hand out this award. There's somebody in the room who's far more deserving of this moment. Could I please welcome on the stage, give him a huge round of applause. Welcome on the stage, Nick Dunn. Round of applause, ladies and gents. No point at all. Absolute pleasure to have you here. I believe you need to explain who you are, what's going on, and uh, I'm going to hand you this and do what you need to do, Father, okay? Um, you may not know me, but I was uh, in India for four years um, during the Chennai Six, if you ever heard about it. Um, I was arrested and put in prison in India for illegal weapons. Um, obviously, last year, November, the case was fully acquitted because I'd obviously done nothing wrong. Um, and I finally came home to celebrate Christmas with my amazing family there at the back for the first time in four years. And during the time I was in prison, um, I had some very low times. Um, but everyone's amazing support got me through it. And the one person who I'm on stage for, who really was the driving force, was my sister, Lisa Dunn. What she done for me and the rest of the guys, the Chennai Six, was phenomenal. She never gave up. She showed the drive and determination to push the government, to push the legal team, to bring myself and the rest of the guys home. And I would like to present the award for best newcomer to my amazing, darling, inspirational sister. And I would like to say, I hope she inspires every single woman in here because she inspires me. So thank you. And